brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. You're listening to the Mike the New Haven podcast, hosted by media personality and consultant, Mike Cologne. for the late start. We were working through some uh, technical problems, but we're here now. Uh, better late than never. We wanted to make sure we got that sorted out before we went live on the air. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 263 of the Mike to New Haven podcast. 262 was interesting. That was Tuesday night. Pat Pogan and Rick Martinez, both returning guests for the EMEN inside the NYPD's emergency service unit, and Mike Penna, retired lieutenant out of both FDNY Rescue 2. And FDNY Rescue One, also returning guests, previously featured twice on the Best of the Bravest interviews with the FDNY's elite. Uh, both all, or all three gentlemen uh, came back, I should say, to revisit the 1991 Union Square derailment. They were all there that night. They responded and they uh, assisted in the rescue efforts. So that incident turned 32 years old this past Monday. So we took a look back on it. It was a good show. I enjoyed it. And uh, they seem to enjoy themselves, too. So tonight's bound to be a very emotional show uh, with my next guest, who I'll introduce shortly. But we got some business to take care of first. Of course, there is my consulting company, Angel Murray. But we'll start off with my company. Need advice on how to start your podcast? Frustrated with the editing process? Can't find a voiceover guy? Hi, I'm Mike Cologne, and I'm here to help. I'm the owner and founder of MC Media Editing Services, your premier consulting company for all things media, where I can offer you consulting advice on how to get started, and once you get started, editing, as well as voiceover work, all for a very reasonable price. If you want to reach me, you can contact me at 917-781-6189 or the email that you see listed here. I'm always available, and I'm always willing to help. Again, 917-781-6189. Why go to some giant consulting firm that's going to charge you an arm and a leg when you can just come to me? If you want to be stress-free, the way to go is to call MC. MC Media Editing Services, your premier consulting company. 
I'm always ready and eager to do business. Uh, so reach out to me if you ever want to. And of course, we have Joe Murray. If you're ever caught on the wrong end of the law, call Joe Murray. Joe's a retired NYPD police officer turned criminal defense attorney. With 15 years of experience in the NYPD from 1987 until 2002, he parlayed a successful career in the NYPD into an equally successful career as a criminal defense attorney. His website is jmurray-law.com, where you can reach him at 646-838-1702, or just email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. Okay, thanks to Joe Murray, as always, for his support. And before I introduce my guest, real quick shout out to people tuning in tonight. We got Rod Ventigan in the chat, who's a colleague of my dear producer. And of course, a special shout out to not just everybody else tuning in, but the Rogers De La Cruz uh, family down in Pennsylvania. Nice enough to tune in tonight. Some of my extended family among them uh, and my producers down in PA enjoying a nice weekend. And he wanted me to give a shout out to them before we get into things tonight. So shout out to them. And thank you very much for tuning in. Now to my next guest. It was an adventurous 20 year career for him as he experienced the full cycle of emotions that police work can provide. And it can provide a lot, as he'll tell me about tonight. He was a longtime member across two different stints of Manhattan's 13th Precinct, where he worked as both an officer from 1987 until 1997, and again as a detective from 2000 until 2005. He's also an alumni of auto crime, where he was from 1997 until 2000. And lastly, the major case squad, where he was from 2005 until his retirement in 2007. And that, for this episode 263 of the Mike the New Haven podcast, is retired NYPD detective Roy Ruin. Roy, welcome. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Oh, thank you very much for being here. Long time coming to get you on. And like I, I said I'm in the promo for the show, I'm glad I reached out. So before we get into you getting on the job, same question I ask every guest. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in uh, Rosedale, Queens, New York. I was a blue-collar family. My father, who was a uh, World War II veteran, uh, was a New York City police officer. Uh, he joined in 1955, and he retired in uh, 1977. The night of the big blackout was his first day of retirement. Wow. My mother uh, was a nurse, and, uh, you know, I, I was a middle child. My uh, brother Steve uh, was a sergeant. He went on the police department first. I followed right behind him, and uh, my sister was a dental assistant. And, uh, you know, I went on the job quite young. I, uh, I, I went on uh, when I was just hit 20. I was 22 years old when I entered the police academy in uh, January 20th, uh, 1987. So seeing your dad at work, I imagine that did it for you. You wanted to be a cop after seeing him. Yes, I, I did. I, I really didn't. You know, looking back, like people ask me, uh, it's like anything else in life. You know, you're out and about in your neighborhood and you run into people and you find out like, you know, he or she is a cop and you're like, uh, or a fireman or anything else. And you go, Hey, if they could do it, I could do it too. Right. You know, I, I don't know how it is today, but that was the thing back then. But I really, I did. I, uh, I, I wanted to do it. And, uh, uh, my, my older brother, Steve, he's two years older than me. Uh, you know, he would come home as a rookie cop and I'd be asking him all these questions. So my brother, Steve was a big influence also in helping me, uh, you know, choose my path. You know, as I've covered many a time with cops that came on before the merger of 1995, you get on during a time when you don't know exactly where you're going to go until the end, because they would do five, five and five. These five will go to the NYPD. These five will go to housing. These five will go to transit. Did you specifically, given your family history, want the NYPD or did you not care just as long as you got to be a cop in New York City? Well, like everybody else, <laughs> I'm sorry, Mike, that's why you brought that up. Thank you so much. You know, everybody says that, like, I just wanted to get on. But of course, you know, you know, transit was transit. And 
I work with transit cops and housing cops. And when you really get on the job and you see how they work, you know, when you don't know, you're like, I don't want to be transit. I don't want to be housing. I don't want to be NYPD. They all had just as difficult jobs out there, uh, you know, uh, and, um, you know, of course I wanted to be NYPD, but if I would have gotten transit or housing, of course I would have taken it. And I'll, I'll tell you in a short story what had happened when, you know, I got out of the academy and I met a rollover from transit that I worked with in NSU, uh, uh, you know, after I got out. But, uh, you know, like I said, entering the academy, I, I found out that I was uh, NYPD and, you know, that's the way I went. Uh, don't ever discourage it. Go on. <laughs> no, of course. Of course. In 1987, did they still have NSUs or were they starting to do away with that? I know at, by the beginning of the 90s, they had done away with it. Like everything else with the police department, they always change. At the time, it was FTOs. And then it turned, when I got there, it was NSU. So I was assigned to NSU 3, which was uh, Midtown Manhattan, uh, you know, Times Square. And it covered uh, Midtown South, Midtown North, and the 17th Precinct. And we were signed there for six months. So I imagine, I mean, listen, you're 22 years old. You've grown up in New York City, but you were a Queens kid. So this is Midtown Manhattan during the 80s. It's a wild time. Cracks just yeah. starting to come out on top of that. This was before Giuliani distified it in the mid-90s. Yeah. So being a 22-year-old kid on the streets of Midtown as a rookie cop, that had to be quite the eye-opener for you early on. Oh, without a doubt. Uh, the first thing was, like, people laugh when I always say, think of the movie, uh, what was that, Taxi Driver. Yep. When you're, out there, when you're out there on 42nd Street, it was just, it was unbelievable. And when the tourists all went home, you know, uh, you know, you were out there with the undesirables, the scammers, and you learned real fast. And like, unlike today, a lot of times you were by yourself, you know, you just had your radio, you know, uh, you know, there was another police officer would be a block away. And back in those days, you know, if you, teamed up together, you would get in trouble, you go down, you're supposed to be on 8th Avenue, you're supposed to be on the other side. And you know, it, it felt like you were kind of back in high school, but when you were out there by yourself, it was an eye open. I saw a lot of things uh, that, you know, uh, really just victims and, you know, just you know, you know, ODs on the street, you know, uh, press, it, it just horrible, you know, just, it, it was, but, you know, you felt like you were doing something. You were out there and you were doing something. You were helping. You know, no matter who it was, you were out there helping. And as a young 22-year-old, uh, you know, that's, you know, the way I felt. Uh, you know, and that's when I started getting active, making arrests. Because I said to myself, you know, this is what, what I'm here to do. And, um, you know, uh, I went out and I was active. And, you know, I, I did what I had to do. And, you know, uh, I think I was told one time I got yelled at, by the desk sergeant, he said to me, you're not going to get any OT out of this, kid. <laughs> <laughs> not in those days. I don't know how it is now. But, yeah, that was – and that was the thing back then. Yeah. And, and, and I'm reading, I'm in the middle of reading Bill Braddon's newest book, The Profession, and he talks about that. And this, it's, yeah. it was not just in New York City. It's nationwide at this time in the 70s and 80s right. yeah. where they were measuring policing not by crime prevention but how fast you could clear a call. You get a call. You maybe get a collar right. out of it. Yeah. Maybe two. You know, right. you bring them back and how fast can you clear that call to get to the next one? And, you know, and that was something that exactly, he, was, yeah. he was really discouraged by because like exactly your attitude. I want to be active. I want to make college. I want to be a cop. <laughs> I'm not worried about how long it's going to take me just as right. long as I help somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. It was true. And, um, you know, 
it was, you know, there was a lot of stress too, because you're young. Right. You know, you're seeing people shot. Uh, you're seeing people, uh, you know, just name it, you know, jump is uh, that word, but somebody commits suicide when they jump off a building. Yep. Uh, accidents, you know, stabbings, slashings, just, you know, everything, you know, and you kind of cope pretty quick with it. You kind of say, all right, you're here to do it. And then, like the other uh, rookie offices, that you worked with in NSU were all rookies. You kind of got tighter together. You kind of like, you know, you bonded, you know, because you were out there and you were working together. But, you know, uh, that's what I always appreciated. And you always had senior officers. I was lucky because my brother Steve was, uh, he had, uh, I think I had four years in Midtown South. So I was only there for my NSU. My nickname was The Little Ruined. <laughs> Because back then, this, the cops didn't talk to us unless right. we needed help. You know, it was just the right. way it was, you know. Well, you had to earn your keep, right? You know. Yeah, don't get, you know, don't get offended. It's just the way it was, you know. And, right. uh, yeah, so you know, and, and I can remember standing on, uh, I think it was on 42nd and 8th and uh, old time, we consider it old time. Uh, he was walking up and he, he looked at me and he says, you're a little ruling. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, my brother's Steve. And he goes, Steve's a good man. And he walked away. <laughs> so I, I kind of had that little, you know, you know, I always count my blessings that my brother was there while I did my six months because, uh, you know, you're working with those police officers that were assigned to that person, you know. Right. And, um, you know, uh, I had a great group of guys. And you mentioned earlier about um, transit. We had a transit rollover uh, that was uh, he was in transit. And then he went on, I think, and then he went on six months before I did. And uh, he rolled over from transit. So you had to repeat your NSU mm -hmm. uh, because now you're in by PD. So, uh, and uh, he lived in Long Island and uh, it was police officer Eddie Byrne. And, uh, you know, um, what's kind of funny about it was, you know, he lived, he lived in Massapequa and I lived in Rosedale and we would take the same train, the Long Island Railroad, because it was right there. And, uh, you know, um, he was just, as a person, he was um, he was always that kind of guy. He come over to you like when you know, hey, what's up? How's it going? You know, yeah. Like I knew him that way. Like you know, when you see pictures and stuff about you know, police, you know, in when when he was tragically murdered, uh, you know, I always thought of him in a different light. You know, I, you know, we worked together, and you know, he had the six months. I used to call him the six month handbag. Remember <laughs> <laughs> you telling me that? Yep. Yeah, because he had, yeah. you know, he did the transit time, but he was knowledgeable, you know, and, yeah. you know, you would want somebody like that, uh, you know, with you, you know, when you were out there and, you know, like I said, with everybody else in that issue, not taken away from anybody else. We had a good group of people. And uh, I remember um, that six months was what, from July until December uh, of uh, 1987. And me and him were standing in front of St. Patrick's Cathedral because they, they had a fix of that because I, I I don't remember exactly, but somebody, some um, emotionally disturbed person went in and attacked parishioners in St. Patrick's Cathedral. So they had kind of like a fix a post there or whatever. And I remember him telling me he was going to the 103. And I said, you're going to the 103? And he says, yeah. He goes, I, I want to go to Queens. Uh, you know, I want to work there. And I think he, he had a friend that he wanted to partner up with. And, uh, you know, I was like, uh, I found out I was going to the 13th. So uh, <laughs> I was like, all right, you know, I'm, I'm staying in Manhattan. And uh, that was the last time I saw him or talked to him. Yeah. 
for those that don't know the story, I'll tell it briefly. Eddie Byrne came from a family of cops. Uh, and he, as you said, got out originally to New York City Transit Police. He rolled over into the NYPD. And on the night of February 26, 1988, he was guarding the home of a witness who was going to testify against a drug dealer. And these two animals rolled up and one guy pretended to knock on the uh, window of Eddie's cruiser, trying to ask, pretending to ask him for some directions or help or whatever it was. And while he did that, the other animal rolled up with the gun and like the coward he was shot Eddie five times in the back of the head and, and murdered him. And that murder sparked not just outrage across the five boroughs, it sparked outrage nationwide. President Reagan, who was still the president at the time, called Eddie Burns' family to offer his personal condolences. And when he was campaigning for president, George H.W. Bush, or as some of you better know him, Bush 41, not to confuse him with his son, uh, carried around Eddie Burns' badge on his campaign trail. So Eddie's murder, which turned 35 years old this later, is one that really changed things in New York City. And he's remembered his brother went on to become a deputy commissioner with the NYPD, Larry Burns. He passed away a few years ago of a heart attack. But the Byrne family has given a lot to New York City policing. And Eddie was no exception. He's one of those guys, and it's a shame. He only had two years with the NYPD. You know, as you talked about, and as many people who knew him talk about him, at 22 years old, he was a rising star. There's no doubt he would have been a detective someday, sergeant. He had a great career ahead of him. Yeah, we got, we, you know, like I said, um, um, I knew him, you know, as a friend, you know, as a, you know, you look back on your career and, um, you know, I, everything you just said is true, but like, you know, you look back, I only, you, you only visualize us being two rookie cops having the transit time and, uh, you know, he was, he knew I was active and, you know, he was active and, uh, you know, uh, it really hurt, you know, right after I got to my permanent command. <laughs> Uh, he passed away shortly after that, you know, yeah. and, um, you know, uh, you know, that was the start of a lot of things for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're talking yeah. with Roy Rulin, retired NYPD detective. Let me ask you, not that it wasn't real for you before. I'm sure your father had told you stories. I'm sure when you were in the academy, your instructors told you stories, but it's different when it's someone, you know, even if you're not airtight with them, if you know them in any way, it hits very close to home. Or change that it hits you directly at home, directly in the heart. So when he was murdered in the line of duty in 88, tell me about how that shifted your perspective, if at all, as a very young cop who, like you said, just got to your first permanent command. Yes. Um, well, it was funny because, um, you know, when I got to my command, not to get off the subject mm -hmm. uh, about it, uh, about Eddie, because um, Anthony and me had just, you know, met. Uh, right. Anthony started, Sanchez. Yeah, it was January 13th, uh, 1988. Uh, I remember I was assigned. Uh, I got to the 13th precinct. I sat down. Uh, I didn't know anybody. Remember, we were all in various center shoes, and now we're all going to our permanent command. So I had gotten there, and um, I was sitting there, and I'm looking around, and you know everybody's looking around, and there was this gentleman sitting to the right of me. And uh, he looked at me, had a big smile on his face. And he says, uh, he goes, hi, my name's Anthony. And I said, hi, I'm Roy. And he goes, uh, you know, I said, you know, I said to him, I says, uh, yeah, I says, uh, great, uh, February, uh, January 13th, uh, uh, we're assigned to the 13th. And he says, <laughs> yeah. And he was just, you know, nobody was talking. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. 
But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. You know, we would just all like, you know, we would eventually would all become best of friends. But right. it was just, it always amazed me how he just, for some reason, sitting next to me, just turned and introduced himself to me and, and said to me, I'm, I'm Anthony, I'm Anthony, you know, Anthony Sanchez. And I said, hi, I'm Roy, Roy Rowland. And he's like, yeah, and it just, you know, it, that started, you know, right there. And, uh, you know, um, you know, we found out later on that we would it be assigned to the same squad of police officers where, you know, back then we weren't steady tours. So we were assigned together, uh, you know, and um, another good friend of mine uh, who was a rookie with us, police officer, Joe Abruzzi, uh, he was with us. And you got to remember too, was uh, you know, in our group, there was so many of us and, you know, they were hiring at that time. They were hiring a lot of cops from 85 to 86 to 87. So we were all like kind of in that same age group. And uh, that kind of, you know, took a little of the uh, rookie stress jitters away, you know, when you when you first got there. But uh, uh, that's how I started, you know, the first time I met my uh, partner was that first day. And, uh, you know, sorry, cut you off. Go ahead. I, no, no, that was that was that was uh, like I said, the first day I met him. And then uh, just to finish was uh, I was uh, driving a sergeant. And um, very nice man. I'm still friends with him today. And uh, he was reading the paper. And uh, they said about a police officer being um, shot in Queens. And he showed me the paper. He held it up and he showed it to me. And it was, I was driving. We were having coffee. And it was Eddie Byrne. <laughs> and uh, he, I think the sergeant was more shocked. You know, like what would be, you know, me being sitting next to him saying, I worked with him. I was yeah. in his same issue. I just spoke to him, you know, a month ago, you know, and um, it was horrible. It was horrible. I just remember uh, I was new and I remember the, this, he just said to me, uh, do you, you know, you want to take lost time and go home? And I'm like, I'm brand new on the 13th. I'm like, no, 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 no. I want to. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah. and then, um, uh, Anthony, uh, who our lockers were next to one another, and over the years they changed the locker rooms, but we were next to one another. And 
he was in my NSU, but I didn't know Anthony. He was in another squad. And um, he said, he, re, he, he thinks, you know, I think, you know, you say, I think I remembered, you know, Eddie Byrne. And I'm like, you've probably seen him. And, uh, you know, it was like Anthony was very, very compassionate, you know, towards me. He was like, you know, because we were in the same NSU, he didn't know Eddie, but he knew that, you know, we were all in the, the you know, the same there the, together. And uh, I always remember that with Anthony, it was like the first time that early on that, you know, here I am with my partner discussing about a cop, you know, that I knew. And he, I think, met because we're all in, like went to details and stuff as, you know, uh, and, you know, that was, that was really, you know, kind of hard starting off in the 13th. I'll, I'll tell you that. <laughs> oh, of course. And, and yeah. that was, that was a very dangerous, as I've covered before in the program, a very dangerous time for police officers across all three departments. Because yeah. while you were in the Academy, Bobby Venable in transit gets killed, shot and killed on the man with the gun called two heavily armed guys. That was while Correct. you were still yes. in the N yes. NSU, I should say. Yeah. And then Eddie Byrne happens. Two months later, Tony McLean in housing gets shot and killed looking for a yeah. missing girl. He stumbles upon a drug deal. So this was during a time when, for those of you that just, I mean, I would say, if you really want to understand understand the scope of this for the audience, go on the Officer Down Memorial page, type in NYPD, and just look through the 80s. So many cops not only getting killed, the common theme of them getting killed in the line of duty was gunfire. A lot of guns on the street, and unfortunately, a lot of felons who weren't afraid to use them. And, you know, listen, that's daunting for a rookie like we were talking about earlier. But the 13th, you know, for those of you that don't know where that is, Midtown Manhattan. And I know it because being a huge ESU buff, uh, Truck One's there. It's right next door. And I've been down there. And I don't know how they park there because that street is so freaking narrow. I don't know how you guys did it. But it's it's an expansive area, an interesting area. You got a lot of uh, shady characters and funny characters alike there in that area. And you were working the midnights, you know, during that, during that particular time frame in New York City's history in Midtown Manhattan. So tell me about the interesting stories of the midnight tour specifically during the late 80s, early 90s there. Well, uh, just before that, uh, they, we went to, I think it was 1990 when we had gone, uh, to midnights. And, um, I just got to say, uh, Lord rest them, uh, uh, chief, uh, George Brown was chief yes. of detectives, uh, Lord rest him. He was our commanding officer at the time. And I remember, uh, my sergeant coming up to me and Anthony and saying, congratulations, uh, you know, commanding officer is interview, uh, reviewing everybody's activity and you and Anthony have the activity. So you got a seat. So, you know, we, we were, you know, <laughs> like, Oh, I says, okay, that's, we, we like, we were still like two little kids. Like we were all excited. And then, um, you know, um, we decided, Anthony said, you know, that we're going to go to steady tours. And of course, you know, we were on foot posts together and we responded to a lot of stuff together, you know, and now we're going to be a, uh, a steady, uh, you know, sector car or, you know, police car, as people that don't know what that is. And we were going to midnight. So, yeah, we went right into midnights. And, uh, wow, it was unbelievable back in the day. Uh, uh, our sector was uh, the west side. We had the limelight. Uh, I'll try to name them all. <laughs> I mean, the limelight was ours. We had uh, the building. Uh, we had, uh, what was the other one? Uh, uh, oh God, Ver Club Vertigo. And uh, there was one up on 26th Street. And at that time on midnights, it was, uh, there was a lot going on, you know, and uh, we had a lot of the uh, Palladium or we, on Irving Place. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I heard Grace, of that one. Yeah. 
great story. Uh, myself and Anthony uh, was sitting one night, and it was always there was always mayhem going on at the Palladium when uh, all the uh, West Coast, East Coast rap stuff started. Uh-huh. You know, you know, it wasn't like now today, but back then it was just a term. Like you know, uh, and um, we're sitting there on Irving Place, facing 14th Street. And we're watching this. I'll never forget it. it. was a Pathfinder. I think it was a white Pathfinder. And it just went through every light right past us, right down towards, oh, was that second or third avenue? So uh, Anthony, you know, hits the lights and we pull them over. And uh, we get out and his car's crammed with all these gentlemen and they're all yelling and stuff. And I said, oh, you know, you know, who owns the car? So the passenger's go- yelling at the driver. I said, he goes, I do. And I get out and I walk them because I could smell some, um, <laughs> I could smell Substance. something coming from the car. Yeah. But we were busy in those days. So, you know, so I, I got him out of the car and I walked him over and I said, you know, what are you doing? He says, uh, I'm an actor. And I said, oh, you're an actor? He says, yeah. I said, okay. He goes, some crazy, <laughs> some crazy, he had a good story. Some crazy fan was coming after us. So. We were trying to get <laughs> we were trying to get away from so we went through every red light down 14th Street. So I said, oh, okay. I said, um, so did you notice that the police were there? Maybe you could have pulled over and said, hey, we need help. So he laughed and it was uh Tupac Shakur. <laughs> and uh I remember his name because I really couldn't, you know, I, I said the actor. And uh so I said, All right, listen, you know, get in the car, get going, you know, whatever. And you know, that's what you did, though, you know, right. Like, you know, the movies are all, it's all BS. Oh, sorry. No, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, you didn't say that. You didn't say the word. You're good. I you didn't say, say the word. word. But, you know, in those days, so I met, you know, like so many, you worked midnights and all the clubs were going and when stuff kicked off, you were there. And um, I think it was a short time later on, uh, uh, Tupac got uh, shot. Yeah. The first shooting in, nine, in like 94, I think. Yeah. He, he was, uh, he was leaving some, uh, somewhere in Midtown South yep. and he got robbed. Mm-hmm. And we were coming down and they called over the radio. And when we got to Bellevue Hospital, uh, you know, they were saying, Anthony said to me, that was the actor. No, he kept saying rapper. That was the rapper we pulled over about a month ago. I go, and I was like, no, the actor. And it was like, it was funny because they tell me this story and they laugh. And I got to say, uh, seeing Biggie Smalls, though, uh, I got in front of the Palladium one night. I got to tell you, he dressed like the nines. He had this. He did. This, yeah, no, I. I I could, I, you know, he came out, he looked at me, had a cane, and I remember looking at him, and I, you know, I said to him, you know, you look good, you know, I, I learned to lay on, it was him, yeah. and, uh, you know, he gave me the head nod, and he had the, the old, uh, old hat on, yep. I'll tell you, he dressed nice, that guy, nice shoes, too. Yeah, he was <laughs> a big dresser. Yeah, and, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff, it was a lot of crazy stuff uh, uh, on the midnights, and a lot of people, you know, couldn't handle it, you know, they were like, you know, there was a lot of, you know, the limelight, Another, we had to come back on your podcast and talk about the limelight and, uh, you know, Peter Gation with the patch and everybody in front. And, you know, uh, you know, it was just, it, you know, it was just a time that was really good. And uh, we worked hard. And, uh, you know, as time went on, you know, we gained a reputation. We became the, the, the steady sector in, in our seat. Uh, and we vacation picks, and we were coming up 10 years. And um, May 19th, 1997, it all changed. All yeah. changed. Yeah. Top of the world. We were just, we were loving life. 
you know, uh, everything was great. Uh, you know, his son was born uh, July 31st, 1990. Uh, um, yeah, he, um, he uh, you know, adored his son. Um, Anthony was the type of person, you know, when I met him, he was married. You know, yeah. He got married young. I was a 22-year-old and thought I was a little wild and crazy and whatever. Not saying anything bad, but I envied Anthony. I envied him. I envied him. And I think, you know, working with him, you know, that's how tight I became with him. And uh, my wife, uh, she immigrated from uh, Northern Ireland in uh, 1986, and I met her, and we dated and eventually got married. And he, Anthony was in my wedding party. You know, she came from a troubled area, which was Northern Ireland. And uh, she was not used to, you know, freedom here. And she'll still say it to this day. And, you know, Liz and Anthony were, you know, married. And we all went out together. We went away together. They went to Washington, D.C. together. My wife always wanted to see, the, you know, the Capitol and then right. Disney World. So you're working together and, you know, you're just friends. And then my son, Patrick, was born in 1995. Um, he said to me, you know, you got a son now and I have John, this is going to be really good. You know, you know, it's a couple of years uh, ahead of him. He said, well, don't worry, John will teach uh, Patrick how to play football. And it was all going great. And then just, that was it. Uh, 10 years together, tenure. Uh, we were active, you know, we were respected. We loved what we were doing. And then like I tell people today, it just can change. On a dime. And a dime. I, I, I go like this, snap of a finger. That's, mm -hmm. what that's what happened. That's what happened. I'll I'll get to that night a little bit later. I do want to draw it back a little. By the way, Mark Mulitz, who worked in the 13th for a while, he says to say hello to you. I don't know if you remember. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I do. He's, he's, he's listening. Back. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine. He's been on the show. Uh, hey, Scotty, I just saw Scotty Wagner pop into the chat, former hostage negotiator in the NYPD and homicide detective. Um, just to last note on Tupac Shakur, he actually, I mean, people focus on his rap career. I love his music uh, as a 90s hip-hop fan, but he's actually a pretty good actor, too. I, for those of you that may not be familiar with his movies, I highly suggest uh, Juice, but Poetic Justice is a favorite of mine that he was okay. in with Janet Jackson. So very good movie. He was actually a really good actor who got cut short too soon, unfortunately, thanks to senseless violence. Um one thing I did want to touch on before we get to that night later on in, in the spring yeah. of 97 is you and Anthony were really good at getting stolen cars off the street. And there was a lot of them during this time. So, you know, listen, it takes a really special cop to have an intuition for that. And especially in a place like Manhattan where it's so compact and you have so many cars all over the place and it's not uncommon to see ritzy ditzy cars, if you will. Uh, tell me about how, well, basically, for lack of a better way to word the question, how good you and Anthony got at spotting them and getting them off the street with the perps with them. So the problem was um, where Zeckendorf Towers was, especially in that area where Irving Place was in Gramercy Park. Mm -hmm. um, people that would come in from all over the world yes. <laughs> you know, to come into the city to party and uh, visit and go out to eat or whatever, they always thought, well, I saw that, you know, 16th Street in Irving Place or, you know, Union Square and this was safe. No, nowhere safe. And um, the perpetrators knew where to go. So uh, we were in uniform and we were in a marked police car and it got tough 
so we develop skills and you know I, i'm so i'm thinking i'm got my mind's going back to the day with anthony yeah you know, he would get out of the car and he would go in a door you know like he's going to speak to a doorman and we would watch a certain car and what they would do was a lot of the uh, perpetrators they would pop the lock out of a car and then go and they had a machine to make a key and then go back to that was a favorite so if we saw a lock popped on a car we would drive down or we would see, you know, a car, same car going down the block, like they were looking for a parking spot. <laughs> and there was no, you know, you could only go around like three or four times and <laughs> no cars are moving. And then you notice like, no, they're not looking for a parking spot. But Anthony was very good at it. He was into it. And he always said, you know, Roy, um, when we uh, make that big arrest, I go, yeah, he goes, going to auto crime. And I go, what, auto crime? No, I, I want to go to homicide. I want to go, I want to go there. You know, he's like, and he used to always, he, he was, he, that was Anthony's specialty. He, he, he was into the cars. And yeah, we, um, you know, uh, they would, you know, pursuits weren't allowed. I'm not going to get into that. Yeah, uh, but, uh, I can see why. It's too crowded of an area. Yeah, it's, it's, this ain't Los Angeles. <laughs> but you would notice how, how many cops from uh, the 6th Precinct, the 9th, the 10th, the yeah. South, the 17th, would always be there to assist you. <laughs> yeah. Not only that, you got truck one next door. If it really hits the van, hey, like I said, oh, 13th yeah. is right next to truck right. one. Hey, emergency. <laughs> you know, yeah. and they come right up. You know, they, that's, they, not a, that's not a bad as sad. They they were always the best. They they are, uh, you know, they they were always good. Uh, mm. you know. I remember they were filming that movie. Um, it was a short-lived thing called uh True Blue. Uh, True Blue. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah. yeah, so I, as a rookie cop, I was assigned to Bellevue Men's Shelter, uh, which you would just stand by yourself. And it was, you know, all mayhem with all the, you know, the, the homeless and everybody fighting and drinking and you know, doing, yeah. doing their, you know, doing their drugs. And one day there was a gentleman, he started a fight in the middle of the street. And, you know, I was, they were used to me, you know, and the thing was, it was good about it in those days was, you know, if you mess with the cop that was outside of the men's shelter, you weren't getting a bet. <laughs> that's what the director he was such a nice man i can't remember his name he was the director there and he was such a nice man and he would tell them and so um i grabbed this guy and i'm just like walking him across the street holding him and uh the truck, truck pulls up and i'm thinking to see a shoe and they're all looking out like you know they're in shock and i'm like no no everything's good i go oh no that's the the movie truck <laughs> <laughs> The guy I'm walking the street, across the street starts yelling at him, thinking it's like he has, he was like profanity and everything else. Yes. And they were all the actors. It was it was right on First Avenue and 30th Street. It was hysterical, but yeah, true blue. But yeah, they were always there for us. And God bless, God bless all the men and women that worked there. They, 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 they were they were fantastic. Oh, they were great. And quite a few of those guys that worked in the 13th ended up in ESU, if not truck one. Pete Conlon yes. worked in yes. the 13th. Yeah, you, I would say, you remember Pete? He had a shooting, actually. Pete, he was telling yeah. me about it. Pete Conlon. I, I, I know Pete. Uh, Patty, uh, Patrick, Patty O'Connor. Yep. I know. I know. I, I, if I miss anybody, I'm sorry, but there was so Barry many. Barry Nagelberg. Yeah. Oh, oh. Yeah. Ray yeah. Buckowitz. Yeah. Oh, uh, Ray, guys. Ray. See, I, I worked um, when myself and Anthony uh, became on Midnight's, uh, Ray and his partner, Mike. Mm-hmm. worked with us long before. So we worked with Ray and Mike mm-hmm. when we first got to uh, Midnight's and uh, knew Ray very well. Did did you work with Paul Rogers? He went on to the FDNY later on. You remember Paul Rogers from that time? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. 
I know he's watching tonight. Paul did it the first eight years of his career with the PD in the 13th before he went to the fire department, yeah. became a lieutenant there, did Paul, some great stuff. With that Paul team. Rogers and um, his good uh, good friend, uh, Robert Fazio. Yep. Yeah. Another one, yeah. another gem, another yep. gem, you know, and uh, okay. during this time, you get some, some big jobs going on all over the city. And it must have, because you went from the street crime of the eighties, it reached a fever pitch in 1990 because you had almost close to 3000 homicides to 20, 2600 plus homicides in 90, right. 91. You have two riots, 91, 92 crown Heights in 91, Washington mm -hmm. Heights in 92. And then comes, you know, the bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993. So it's a lot happening in a short period of time. And I think you were telling me off the air, did you go to the bombing in 93? Yes, uh, I did. Uh, I, <laughs> I always laugh about that because uh, I was down in, uh, I believe I it was grand jury or a hearing. And um, I was there by myself and I was in uniform. And... Um, somebody came in and said there was a, a bomb went off at the World Trade Center. And you could hear out of 100 Center Street where I was, you know, in the building, all the sirens. So I had gotten up and the, D, uh, the ADA says, you're not leaving. I said, no, I'm leaving. He goes, no, you're not leaving. I said, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, I got there and um, I saw it. And, uh, you know, everybody was running around and they took my, you know, I was put on a roster and then after a while, um, you know, you kind of think like, all right, I'm on a roster, I'll be okay. So I think a lieutenant came up to me and says, uh, 13 precinct. I said, yeah, I was down in court. He goes, go back to court. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> court was long closed by that point anyway. So. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. It was a good memory. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, of course. That's and some people tell me. I mean, I mean, of course, the bomb squad. I've covered that for my bomb squad miniseries, Tales from the Boom Room. They had the role, and it adds to the ESU, FDNY, whatnot. Yeah. But some people tell me that you know they just went down there to maintain a presence and babysit it, and they always talk about the crater. You know, just oh. how large that crater was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was unbelievable. A, a to see. Yeah, unbelievable. You know, that was uh, yeah a sight a, a sight to see back then, and a warning Absolutely. shot, yeah. if you will. I, yeah. So from and, that period, oh, go ahead. My, my apologies. No, I was saying like, you know, the different smells. Like, I remember like there was like, I don't know, like fuel smell. or I, I remember like all the smells coming from that crater. I guess, you know, uh, I just remember like, you know, that was everything everybody was always worried about. Like, you know, something collapsing or, you know, something, you know, exploding. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was it, it was a sight to see. It really was. You know, yeah. it, it, you know it's, you know, something I'll, I'll never forget. The first one, you know. You know, it's like you said that I don't know how that tower didn't come down because that crater was pretty deep. <laughs> they missed it by a few feet. They it, somebody said it, I think it was one of the bomb squad guys said that they would have parked it a little bit closer to one of the beams. They would have knocked it down. They just missed it by a few feet, which is scary to think. A yeah. few notes in the live chat. Rod Bennigan, appreciate you tuning in. He he says he had a buddy that worked in the Tomb of Gloom, the three two. I know a few people from the three two, yeah, and my too. boy. Uh, my boy Kev tuning in tonight. Good to see you, brother. Hope you're enjoying your Friday night. Now, at this time is interesting in New York City because Dinkins rolls out safe streets, safer city. So you got a lot more cops getting hired across the three departments. And then Ray Kelly came in for his first go around as commissioner from 92 to 94. Crime starting to go down and cops are being incentivized to go out there and do the work. Because when Brian Watkins got killed in 90, that's when the city said enough already. Like, when is this going to stop? You know, it had gotten to a breaking point, as we discussed earlier. Then Bratton comes in. I just had Bratton on the show. We talked about this. 
You maybe heard of him during his time running transit. Now he's the NYPD commissioner. And there's some really cool, radical stuff going on that's specifically tailor-made to cops like you and Anthony. So I imagine 94, 95, 96, when he was commissioner, it must have been a breath of fresh air. Like, wow, like we can really be cops again. Yeah, I mean, you know, right. I mean, you know, what it was was there was a lot of things, um, you know, going on. And the one thing that always really bothered me and my partner, Anthony, was when the whole nonsense with uh, the Dow case came out. Oh, because, yeah. You know, everybody labeled us. And I mean, you know, Piece looking yeah, today and it was tough because, you know, any way you went or any way you did, you know, it was always thrown in your face. Yeah. And, you know, you know, you would say, look, we're not all like that. Exactly. You know, you know it was just I remember that bothered the hell out of me and Anthony because, you know, we were out there working, you know, we were doing you know, we were doing you know, God's work. You know, mm -hmm. we, we didn't mess around. We knew what we were out there to do. And, you know, for people to read stories in newspapers and then turn around and say, oh, dirty 30, uh, you're, all, you're, you're all crooked. Hey, you know, if there was a bag of drugs laying there, you'd, like, you'd be like, hey, you know, go away. Go, you know, go, go bother somebody else. You know, just stupid stuff. It was like a headache you didn't need at that time. Right. And, uh, you know, because a lot of us at that time, there was cops that were getting shot and cops were getting hurt mm -hmm. doing their job and not being corrupt and that, you know, uh, and it just, that, that kind of was like the first blow that we got, you know, you know, besides some others, you know, yeah, you know, I think the other thing too was, you know, like you said, going into, into the eighties, into the nineties, I think the biggest thing for myself and I, you know, speak for Anthony too, and a lot of other police officers was with the AIDS uh, epidemic that came out, mm -hmm. and you know, you went to a lot of these men, gay men that had nobody, and nobody wanted to go near them because they were afraid that it, and they were dying. And to really see somebody suffering, I remember it's like as a young cop, it it really, you know, it was horrible, you know, just. It wasn't like, you know, it was like they suffered, you know, from that horrible disease. And, you know, um, everybody was afraid. Remember, you know, everybody was like, you know, if you, you know, if they, they touched you, you were going to get it. You were going to get it. Yeah. Yeah. And it used to frustrate the hell out of me. Yeah. Because, you know, you would go in and you would see a poor young man and, you know, he's in pain and he's dying and, you know, and, um, or, you know, or he passed and there's, you know, Abandoned, you know, because everybody was like, you know, you have age, you're from another planet at that time. So that was kind of tough dealing with, too. But in the positive sense, you got an education, you know, you did. Well, the people would say, oh, I didn't know that, you know, about many things. And that was one thing like, you know, you know, you're not going to get AIDS from, you know, using somebody's pen, you know, you know, like crazy crap <laughs> yeah i mean it sounds it sounds yeah. crazy now but at the time people yeah. didn't know and no. like you said it wasn't until you know what it wasn't until magic johnson came out and talked about him having hiv that yeah. people finally started to understand it better yeah. because he right. played on the dream team in 92 and people were like oh what about his sweat like it sounds right. in hindsight it sounds ridiculous but back then people really didn't know no they didn't and and you know and that's what I think was bad because like when you responded as a police officer, 
you know, a lot of them, you know, they, they would pass away at home or they were, you know, calling an ambulance and they, you know, cause you know, and, and you went there and, you know, uh, you know, you're just like, this is wrong. You know, it's, it's wrong. You know, it's like, you know, people should understand. And here I am, you know, 23, 24 years old. And I'm like, no, it's, you know, it's not what people think, you know, it's not, you know, and just the fact that, you know, they were by themselves. Uh, well, you were then, compassionate. Yeah, you couldn't sure. help it. <laughs> you couldn't yeah. help it. You know, you yeah, know. So what... yeah, it, you know, it was just that was another, again, welcome to the real world, Roy. You know, it's just this is, and you know, positively, I learned a lot, and I'm proud of it. Oh, you of know? course, I can see yeah. that shining through in in, in your remarks tonight. Yeah. Uh, it's Roy Rulin, Detective Roy Rulin, retired NYPD detective. I'm the Major Case Squad Auto Crime in the 13th Precinct tonight on the Mike Dinewey Podcast, episode 263. Scotty Wagner, who, like I said, retired as a detective in, back in 2001, originally a housing cop. He came over with the merge in 95. Not to mention the Volpe and the Luima case hurt the morale of us all. It was like taking three steps back, he says. It took a lot to regain the public trust. And before you chime in with that, Roy, let me just say that, and not that you guys in the chat would, but to anybody watching this show, and I'm not kidding when I say this, if you ever ask me to have Michael Dowd on the show i will punch you in the face and on that note go ahead your thoughts on that roy <laughs> yeah like i said it was um it was a bad time for us for the us honest active guys that were out there busting our humps mm -hmm. you know and enjoying what we were doing you know and um you know it, you know it's just there was so much like you know it just for some reason that was just like you know it just, it was like so, it's something to be like to make fun of you, you know, or you would go out and someone say, Oh, uh, I remember what was that stupid, uh, the house that Coke built, the crack built, or whatever it was. And, yeah. You know, and they, you know, they, you know, people would make stupid jokes and, uh, you know, you'd be like, What? Oh, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. You know? No, you're not. You know, and then, you know, I think there was a way, I think cops only know it. I know firemen know it too. And there's the kind of look you give a person. And they know, all right, I won't joke with him no more. <laughs> I won't bust the shops. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. I look like, mm, I'm not digging this. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's why it was good when Bratton came in, because it was him, not just him, Timony, Miller, Maple, Animone, you know, and collectively, they kind of restored the trust that the people hadn't had in the NYPD in a long time. And like I said, it was tailor-made towards the active cops that were going out there and making it happen. And like I said, we'll get to that tragic night in a little bit. But before any of that, um, is there a collar from that time frame that you and Anthony had, or maybe you and another officer had, where afterwards you said, dang, that was really good police work? Uh, yeah, there was one particular one. Uh, there was a, a gang of uh, individuals. I believe they were armed with a Tech 9. Mm, and they just went gun. on, yeah, they went on like a robbery spree. Mm -hmm. They hit uh, a couple of um, uh, the coffee vendors that would, you know, set up for the morning because it was midnights. And uh, they put <laughs> they put me and Anthony in a cab, a yellow taxi cab, but we were in uniform. So when the job came over, um, you know, they came up to like hell our cab. <laughs> and uh, can't make it up. Yeah, can't make it up. And we jumped <laughs> out. And all I remember was they all split up. And, uh, you know, Anthony went one way, I went the other. And I remember being on the radio and your heart's going. I, I, I remember reading the radio transmission. Anthony was like, mid-block, mid-block. And, you know, when they recovered the gun, I remember me and Anthony said afterwards, uh, wow, 
uh, <laughs> that was kind of scary. And I said, yeah, but everything went well. We made the arrest. And then another time there was a robbery and uh, it was up there on uh, Broadway and like 24th Street. And uh, one uh, perpetrator was running right past me. I opened up the car door. I was on the passenger side to jump out. Anthony threw it in reverse and hit me in the car, uh, hit me in the back with the car door. <laughs> and it went flying. And, um, you know, I told them to keep going. And, uh, you know, we ended up there. You know, it was, there was, there was, um, a lot, you know, uh, you know, uh, collars that we had, but, you know, always was a good one, but, you know, always looking for the better one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm hey, saying? listen, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. If, if it's good intentions, which it was, then, yeah. hey, have at it. And you guys were certainly having at it. And that's why crime was yeah. going down in the 90s. The city, like I said before, the city for, of 1990 compared yeah. to the city of 1999, night and day. Night and yes. day. Yes, correct, correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely the- right. Yeah, yeah. And a big part of the reason is the work that you guys were doing back then to clean it up. So, uh, you know, I know you wanted to talk about this and, you know, it's something that I, I asked you if you did and you do, and I'll set the stage for you and you'll take it from there. Um, Monday, May 19th, 1997, uh, you're, you and Anthony are working in a sector car along with a few other officers and a call for a robbery in an apartment comes over the air and you and Anthony and a few other officers take it and I'll let you pick it up from there. Yeah, uh, just uh, that that night was um, just to go right before because I think it's always important. I tell because people, you know, afterwards about tragedy and PTSD and trauma. Um, went in that night uh, and uh, uh, I Anthony would come in for Babylon on the Lionel Railroad and I would switch. I was li- I live you know I still do live in Oceanside and I remember I walked up to see which car he was in and he was sleeping, so I banged on the window wake him up and we got in and we were talking and uh we went into work we did our usual thing and um got out we were parked on 26th street and 7th and uh you know we're filling out our memo books and stuff and talking and um anthony um was excited because his son john was turning seven in july uh he was going away with them uh on uh boy scout Jamboree, and um, kept talking about it. And um, he says, "I can't wait to go on vacation." It's you know, it was May, you know, early morning, May nineteenth. I think Anthony was going on vacation, maybe a week or two later. Uh, and then the call came over, and I answered the radio, and uh, they said that uh, there was a call of a robbery in progress, uh, top floor apartment, penthouse apartment on the tenth floor. No further, uh, female caller hung up. So um, myself and Anthony, we drove to the front of the location. Uh, two other officers pulled up. One of them I'm still very friends with today, uh, Vincent P.O., uh, police officer Vincent Fittipaldi. And um, I asked, you know, I went on the radio and I asked, uh, we're in front of the location, do you have any further? So they said, um, which was weird. The 911 operator says she can't talk to you because she said the perpetrator took the phone from her. So I thought right away we thought that maybe this was some sort of some sort of domestic. So it was one of these high-rise apartments, which was you had to push the intercom the button to get into the lobby, and then the elevator they would bring you up in the elevator to the floor, and when the elevator doors opened up, that was the front door going into the apartment. They were big luxury, you know, luxury apartments. 
So we started pushing all the buttons below the 10th floor and some person answered on the third floor and we said we needed to get in. And uh, she said, um, <laughs> like you say, how do I know you're the police? Look out the window. <laughs> That's what we always said. Look out the window, see the police guys. So we got buzzed in and the four of us walked into the lobby. Never forget, there was a stairwell door. And Anthony went over and he pulled on the stairwell door to check it. It was locked, of course. So we all got in the elevator. We didn't want to go straight up to 10. So we figured we hit the third floor, you know, with a person who let us in to find out, you know, the people that live up there, you know, stuff like that. And there was nothing else coming over the radio. We couldn't get up the elevator. We knew we had to be let up. So Anthony turned to me and he said, uh, what, what was the number you pushed again? And I said, three. He went out to hit the button. The elevator doors closed, and we started going up without Anthony. So I, I radioed to him, and I said, Anthony, we're, we're going up. He goes, okay, I'll stay in the lobby. So um, we opened the uh, elevator door, opened up to the third floor, and uh, this we were greeted by this woman. And uh, I started to talk to her, and I just heard a terrifying woman's scream high-pitched scream terrifying terrifying as she was being murdered so i turned and we all turned and i said we need to get up to the 10th floor so she opened up from her apartment they also have access to the stairwell mm -hmm. so we ran from the third floor the three of us all the way up to the 10th floor there was the stairwell door entering the 10th floor apartment and then there was a push alarm door to the roof so we listened we couldn't hear anything we were all out of breath but our general adrenaline was going and uh one of the officers said i'll stay here you guys go back down and we're going to go out on a fire escape so me and uh police officer vincent fittipaldi who i'm very good friends with i still talk to today uh like everybody else but him we went back down and I told the woman, we got to get out on the fire escape. We got to get up there. I had to get up there. Didn't hear any more screaming. So um, she went through the bedroom. She opened up the, the window and we went out to the fire escape. So as we went up the fire escape, you know, it's not that easy. You know, you got your flashlight, you're holding your gun. The fire escapes, West 18th Street, you know, they're old. They're kind of crooked. You know, you have to be careful, you know, you, people are, especially when it's dark. Right. And and, and um, we started up uh, towards this, you know, the top. And I just remember seeing this woman. She was coming down the stairs and she was dressed like in her underwear and whatever. And she's ripping this big, thick uh, gray duct tape off her face. And she had it on her wrist. So she's screaming to me, you got to get in there. You got to get in there. And I'm like, all right. And I sat her down on the um, fire escape. And Vinny was looking up with his flashlight. And I radioed immediately. And I said, we've got something going on here. So I said, listen, I says, um, does he have a gun? What's he look like? How many perps are there? She goes, I don't know. He's wearing a mask. I'm like, oh, that's good. Uh, I says, does he have a gun? She says, yes, he has a gun. I says, okay, fine. So I radioed at that point um, more, uh, get everybody here. And uh, Anthony radioed back to me and said, you know, Roy, I'm in the lobby. 
<laughs> so, okay. And I told him where the other officer was, where we left him. And um, we went up and uh, perpetrator turned out all the lights in the apartment. So it was completely dark. So uh, we were looking in and I could see that when uh, the woman ran out, she had locked the bathroom door. And, uh, you know, at this point, we just yelled in, you know, police, we know you're in there. We know you're armed. Don't do anything stupid. So um, we entered and uh, I unlocked the, turned the light on the bathroom. I unlocked the door and there was um, another individual laying on the floor, totally taped all around. He had a beard. He had long hair and he was tied behind his back. I, you know, I was able to talk to him afterwards and, you know, during the trial and I just took my whole hand and I ripped it right off his face. I know I took some hair with me and I said, um, where is the uh, perpetrator? And he says, he's in, he went to the elevator and he's got my gun. I said, so now he's got two guns. He goes, yeah. Okay. You know what he looks like? No, he's wearing all black. He's got a ski mask. All right. Not a problem. I get to um, the elevator and uh, all I remember was I was going to open up the stairwell door to open it up to let the officer in and the elevator doors were starting to open and some officers and a sergeant got off and all of a sudden I just heard, you know, bang, 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 bang. And um, I um, immediately opened the door and it was like somebody just finished a cigarette. It was all, but it was a heavy, heavy smell of uh, gunpowder. Mm -hmm. So we all proceeded out into this foyer and the officer had taken cover or whatever he did, but the alarm on the, the roof door was still not engaged, you know, wasn't engaged or anything. So I had my back to all of them and people were screaming from the street. He's on the roof, he's on the roof. So I'm sitting there, I'm arguing that, no, I, could, I, I was right there. I go, it's got to be lower. And I went to turn to go down the stairs to go to the floor below, which would have been the ninth floor. And they said, Roy, we're all going to the roof. So um, we all got up to the roof. And what I had done, I had turned my um, radio down because when I was entering, you know, the apartment, you do it because you don't, you know, it's a, it's a tactic where you don't, when you have your radio blaring, but we already yelled in and, you know, again, this is what happens with cops second guessing what they did. But when I turned my radio down, I found out later on that Anthony was tried <laughs> to reach me. And, um, uh, at that point I couldn't answer him because I turned my radio down. So, um, Finally, when I turned it up and everything was going on, we had gone to the roof and um, we decided to take, there was no connecting buildings. So I kept saying, the perpetrator's got to be in the building. He's got to be in the building. I know he's in the building. So we decided to take the um, uh, fire escape back down to the back uh, you know, uh, yard there. Uh, and and um, there was other cops back there. So when we went into the basement of the building, there was blood. There was a trail of blood. So I, I went over the radio and I said, you know, there's blood in the basement. And the 911 operator said to me, 
I got a call that there's blood on the third floor. So I went, all right, you know, and whoever I was with, because cops were everywhere at this point, we came up, went through the lobby, were able to access the stairs and um, started up the stairs. And um, I remember uh, police officer Dave Ned, uh, who I'm still good friends with, he was a police officer in the 6th Precinct at the time. And like I said, back in those club days, the limelight and in the 6th, we were always, that's how we got to know each other. Because okay. he always responded across the border. And um, I looked up and I, I saw him and I saw uh, Vinnie Fittipaldi and a couple other police officers. And they screamed, like screamed at me, get out of the way. And I looked and they were holding, they were holding Anthony. So um, I looked at his face and I said, that's my partner. So um, right away I grabbed him by his head and I was like holding him by his head and we were holding him and we were going down the stairs and we were running down the stairs like from the third to the main lobby so fast we almost dropped him. Sure. And you know, tragedy makes you a joke because we always said, Dave says, I remember how I said, Dave, remember we almost, yeah, we almost, we almost dropped Anthony, you know? And uh, the thing was though, um, when we got into the lobby, it was just completely loaded with emergency service, EMS, supervisors, cops, everybody. Everybody just seemed to stop. I could say it to this day, in my everybody just froze for that one minute. We were coming out holding him, and I'm holding his head. Dave's holding him, and we're all holding him. We're all holding him, and we're trying to get out. And everybody just, I, what upset me more about that was I just think seeing everybody else's shock, where everybody just stood. I don't think anybody could really experience that, but I did. Just the shock of everybody just standing in place as we're coming out screaming, we got a cop shot. Now, we I didn't know where he was shot. So um, got out into the ambulance. I had let go him for a minute. Uh, I turned to Vinny, and uh, it's just it's what we do. It's not Anthony, Vinny. Tell Vinny, tell me it's not Anthony. Please, please tell me it's not Anthony. He was just, you know, like the rest of us. He says, Roy, I don't know. I remember I looked at him, he goes, I don't know. So I jumped in the uh, ambulance and uh, got in the back with him. And it was, I think it was two paramedics. And um, they started ripping at his uniform. So I had went up to him and I put my hands and, and I leaned down. I said, where are you shot, Anthony? And he was... And then his eyes started. His eyes started to go a little white. And then the um, paramedic basically took his fist, bang, knocked me right back, and said, "Sit down." The best thing you could do for us now is just let us work on him. Which to this day, I would have did the same thing. So they were going to rip his jacket apart, and we just bought the jacket. So I told him, I said, please, give me his jacket. They gave me his jacket. And the ride to um, 
St. Vincent's Hospital. I got his jacket, his wallet, and his boot. <laughs> so um, they um, ripped the pe- part of his uniform pants. And when I saw his uh, underwear was stained with blood, I knew it was bad. I, I, I knew it was bad. So um, got to the hospital. They came rushing in, and uh, I was with them. I wheeled them in. They were wheeling them right into surgery, and I just said, Anthony, everything's going to be all right. He says, I'll see you when you get out. So um, that was it. Took them away, and um, like I said earlier, we had a police officer, Joe Abruzzi, who me and Anthony and myself all got assigned to the 13 precinct together. Ten years later, he's the precinct delegate. And me and him and Anthony, we hung out many of the times, went to weddings, everything together over those 10 years. He came in and he said, he's gone. He's gone, boys. He's gone. So um, I think what it was was that, um, you know, you talk about getting kicked in the stomach twice. Uh, I took my hands and I grabbed my hair. And I grabbed my hand. I had my blood on his hands. And um, I just I just remember, um, not remembering much after that. But the thing was, I said, you got to get a hold of yourself, Roy. And it was just like that. It was gone. It was done. Done. Over. And um, that was it. And um, right afterwards, it was, um, it started. <laughs> You know, uh, you're with somebody and, um, you know, you're envious of him. You're his brother, you're his friend. And, um, you know, your kids and everything else and christenings. And um, now he's gone. And uh, I think my first thing was uh, fear. It just, it was normal with, it was fear. You have the fear and everybody else felt the same. Oh, of course. Fear. Yeah, it's understandable. You know, you have the fear. And then, um, you know, was at the hospital and um, they wanted to admit me. and I didn't want to be admitted. And uh, I said, no, I, I, I want to go back and, you know, be with um, the offices. And um, it was just, just a, you know, I, I, they explained, like, when I got back there, it was like you knew the support was so much there, but it, now, you know, it's now Roy, it's been X amount of hours. It's not the same, <laughs> you know, it's not the same, you know, and um, it wasn't. And uh, it just, everybody was affected. Everybody was so affected. And um, I think one of the first things was uh, that uh, I noticed was Gramercy Park, Block Association and the community itself just came out full support that very morning. It was unbelievable. The president, uh, Arlene Harris, who I'm good yeah, friends with. Great lady. Yeah, she was, they all were. Because see, what it was was that, you know, Anthony, you know, working at midnight, she got to know the bouncers, she got to know the doormen, 
you got to know, you know, the regular recidivists that were always breaking into cars. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, when, you know, they they heard about it, you know, what do you do? You know, it's like, you know, it's tough to cope. You know, it's like, you know, he's gone and, you know, everybody was just like, they were shocked. and But they all came together and everybody was so nice. And I got to commend Darlene Harris and the Gravity Block Association. They really, 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 from the beginning, not only for Anthony and his family, but for me. For me, they did it for me too which was important because, you know, I had the support of the police department and my family and everything, but that was also very something I'll, I'll cherish for the rest of my life because they were very, very good. And, um, you know, uh, we got the street renamed and, you know, all that, but it was the problem that I think happens is, is that uh, I tell people in peer groups is that people um, do two things. They wish they could have did something else. They wish they could have been there. They wish they weren't on vacation. They wish they could have been. You could do that for your whole life. It's not going to yeah. change anything. Right. You know, uh, people, you know, just were grieving and traumatized. And for me, I think the hardest part was, was that um, I noticed, like, when we started right from going down to court and, uh, you know, Kerry O'Connell was a good friend of mine. <laughs> she was the ADA. You know, when I first went into meet her, I was all so upset when I first went into meet her when she was uh, the prosecutor that was handling the case. I had a loose button on my jacket. She goes, give me a jacket. And she sewed it for me. <laughs> God bless you, Kerry. She was the best and she did an awesome job. But um, when we first started going down there, uh, a lot of us that were involved, I noticed that um, a lot of my coworkers were kind of shying away from me. So it would, you know, upset me, you know, you know of course, you know, uh, and um, I ran, you know, I talked about Dave Ned, who was the one that tried desperately to save Anthony, like Vinny and the rest of them, carrying him down the stairs. I was in uh, front of court with him. And uh, I asked him, I said, Dave, uh, what's going on? Right away you think, like, so bad. Like, maybe they think that I did something wrong, you know, and they're mad at me. It's it's the trauma that does it, you know. And um, Dave said to me, he said, you know, Roy, he goes, don't, please don't take it personal. He goes, every time they see Anthony, they, they, they see you with him. Now he's not with you. Yeah. So, um, like myself, it's tough because you guys were always together, and you know, um, so I had to get used to that, you know. And eventually, you know, you know, you, you learn to support one another. But right from the beginning, that I think was the hardest thing that I could cope with was, um, you know, that you know because uh, it just um, it you know what it is to have trauma and PTSD and oh, yeah. stuff because it's just, it, it doesn't, you have to learn right from the beginning that, okay. And like I said, it, it, it was um, very, very hard. And the, you know, the trial was very hard. Um, my testimony was horrible. You know, um, I had to go in and I remember I held up his jacket 
that he was wearing that night for the jury. Uh, staring there, staring at that arrogant perpetrator, that murderer. Piece of crap. Just standing there looking at him. He always funny when I was on the stand. I remember I kept looking at him and he kept putting his head down. He wouldn't he wouldn't look at me when I was on the stand. Yeah, he's a coward. One of the old time court officers, I, he was a legend down there. He come he came walk he would walk me out. You know, we took a break because I broke down on the stand, give my testimony. Mm -hmm. And he used to say to me, Don't let this blanking guy bother you. I says, he ain't bothering me. I'm bothering him. Good. Oh, so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it was tough. Uh, it, it really was, you know, horrible. But I took from all that and I started, like I explained to you, that how I used it to help others. You know, I, you know, you had to do it. And, um, yeah. You know, his wife, Liz, and, and, and myself, you know, we were very, we, we, we went away together. We, 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 like I said, we, you know, socialized together outside of work. And uh, I think um, the whole funeral thing was, you know, hard enough. But, you know, when they came up to me and said that John, who was only six at the time, wants to ride in the back of a police car to the, the church. Um, I, Roy, will you do it? And, you know, John knew me, you know, <laughs> since he was a baby. I know he's only six, but he knew me. And um, I did it. Everybody says, I wouldn't, you know, oh, I couldn't. And um, I got in the back of the police car with him, and it was quiet. Everybody's saluting. And, you know, the hearse and families, and we're in the police car, and I'm in the back with John. And, you know, God bless that. You know, I, I still, you know, I've spoken to John, but God bless you know, he, you know, even as a young child, he, you know, he, he, we're holding his hat. You know, we had his hat. His wife, his mother gave him his father's hat. And, you know, John held my hand, held my hand. And um, he knew as a six year old, six and a half year old child, uh, you know, that, you know, he was giving me support. My partner's son was giving me support in that, that car going to that uh, church in uh, Babylon. And um, that also helped me. All that, as bad as it is, believe it or not, it strengthens you. It really does. Oh, it yeah. Does you, you know, you know, and um, Scott Schneiderman was convicted. Uh, I think he said during his closing statement, some line, he mentioned that I had to live with my lies. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was uh, just, I was glad it was over. And I was glad he was going to jail for the rest of his miserable life. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that was, that's, that was the closure, <clears throat> you know, at that time was the closure for a lot of us. It really was. Mm -hmm. you know, I know if I old news footage. I donated a lot of the footage I had from the news, including Anthony's jacket. Uh, I, I know I sent you a picture of it. We put his, his actually jacket he was killed in. Let's, let's pull up a picture of that, uh, Producer Vic, if you don't mind, should be towards the bottom of the seat. There we yeah. go. There's the jacket. Yeah, it was the jacket he was killed in. And um, basically, uh, we had put shield and his medals just like he would have been. And uh, I donated it to the uh, National Law Enforcement Museum in um, <clears throat> Washington, D.C. Uh, hopefully, we can do something after this to get it 
maybe displayed once in a while because I think it's important. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, like I said, uh, you know, uh, it was it was a closure for a lot of us. It really oh, was. yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and Scott Schneiderman is dead. And I say that happily. He died in 2002 <laughs> of AIDS. And this is I obviously AIDS is bad. But this is the one time I'm actually happy AIDS killed someone. Uh, because if anybody uh, deserved that kind of a fate, it was him. And you know what? Listen, to tell you, to, to do the comparison, how many people are talking about him all these years later compared to how many people are talking about Anthony? Oh, God. No, no. Goes to show, goes to show quality of one person up here, quality of the other person all the way down here. And I want to thank you for telling that story because you know what? When And this is this is hitting different for me. Excuse me, because it's, it's been a couple months since I lost my grandfather. Uh, he passed away back in July. And when you go through, and I think this is something that Victor and I, my producer, were talking about the other day. When you go through any kind of adversity, right? Talking yeah. to you guys, talking to my friends in the FDNY that went through some of the terrible things in their own right. You can go one of two directions. Either you can shrink and kind of drown yourself in the sorrow. Some guys hit the bottle. Right. Some guys get into some other unhealthy, yes. self-destructive yes. stuff. Or you can do what you're doing, which is, holy crap, I've been through this terrible thing. But once I've regrouped myself and made my peace with it as best you can, let me help others. And that, that you know what? If I had a cap we're on right now, I'd tip it to you, my friend. Because the fact that you're able to take something like that and help others – uh, you know what? To say that that's a wonderful thing to come out of such a freaking tragedy is an understatement. So kudos to you. Oh no, thank you. I mean, um, you know, uh, a funny story. Uh, when you said Schneiderman died, I was watching. I was home watching Escape from Alcatraz <laughs> when I got the phone call from uh, police officer Joe Abruzzi, who was a 13 precinct delegate, and he had told me that he had died. So um, I called Liz. I said, he goes, no, I, I figure you want to call her and tell her. Yeah. So what had happened was um, the DA had released uh, his property, which included his uniform, uh, you know, his jacket, his gun belt, and everything else that was evidence. So shortly after Anthony uh, was killed out where he lived, because Anthony was a proud Long Island native. Oh, yeah. Yep. yeah. Oh, he was. He was. We never got to see Billy Joel, but... <laughs> One thing we had in common, he was a big Billy Joel fan, and I was too. But um, hey, listen, who isn't? I love yeah. the guy. Yeah, so you know, um, they named the park out in Babylon, which is still there today. Uh, police officer Anthony Sanchez Parker Pool, I think I sent you a picture of it. Yep, we have that they, picture too. Yeah. If you can pull that up, too. yeah, they uh, they they do um, you know, cleanups out there uh, from the community. That there was it is. A, that was a local uh, volunteer uh, fire. Uh, they're like the uh, cadets, mm -hmm. and uh, I wish I knew the woman's name. God bless her that ran it. And um, she, they went out every every year in the spring, and they would clean out there in the pool. But uh, going back, um, when Anthony's uniform was uh, given to us, I told his wife we'll properly dispose of, you know, his ripped up bloody shirt and everything else in the pants. So what we did was we went out to the park and we did like a controlled, you know, burn, and we disposed of the uniform and we uh, buried the ashes on the side of the park. And it's funny. That's where Anthony's playground is today. Mm. So, yeah. So I always say, you know what? He's there watching over all the children, you know, because uh, they black topped it and they built a beautiful, um, beautiful uh, playground there. And it says Anthony Sanchez park, you know, playground, I'm oh, sorry, playground. And um, every time I've gone out to the, the park out there, I, I always look, I said, yeah, that's where we, uh, we did. And of course, like his jacket, 
I wanted to preserve that because it was important to do it. You know what I'm saying? I felt it was. And, um, you know, um, you know, like I said, the community with such outpouring and, um, you know, uh, going to the park and, you know, speaking and, you know, and, uh, it just, it, it's, it, it, it makes you feel like, you know, proud, proud, very, um, proud. As you should be. Yeah. As you should be. Hey, Vic, pull, pull that. I want to say something real good. Pull that picture of Anthony's uniform back up because this is going to go out to all the, the young cops or people that are thinking about becoming cops. For those of you that are going to watch this on YouTube, maybe you're new on the job, maybe you're thinking about coming on the job, take a good look. I want you to take a real good look at this uniform, okay? This is the job right here. This is what the job's all about. Charisma, guts, and the goal, no matter what the situation is, the courage to march into any kind of danger. Did Anthony care if these people were rich or poor? Or, no. And neither did Roy, neither did any of the other officers that responded that night. The point is, they knew people were in trouble and they went to help. And that uniform right there symbolizes exactly that. He slapped it on that night. And what was his goal? His goal wasn't to go sit in the patrol car and have a, you know, a cup of coffee and wait until the tour to be over. No. Of course, cops want quiet tours. You don't want chaos to be enveloping the city. But if a call comes over for help, that's the uniform you put on. That's the cape. That's better than Superman's cape. And I love Superman. It's better than Batman's cape. And I love Batman too. But it ain't got nothing on that uniform right there. So when you put that uniform on, rather if you're on the job or if you're thinking about coming on the job, wear it with the same pride he did. And take a good look at it because that is the uniform of a hero. Thank you, Vic, thank for the picture. And thank you for that. That was, thank you. That's You said it very well. That's perfect. You know, and, 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 your career um, is it's an, it's at an interesting point in 1997 because you're halfway through, right? You're halfway through the journey, and this top is, of the world, <laughs> right? And then something like this happens, and you spent some time in auto crime, which is something that, as you mentioned earlier, Anthony wanted to go there, and it was. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. That, that when I was told, I was uh, I, I I went to see uh, Commissioner Safer, yes, and uh, First Deputy Commissioner uh, Patrick Kelleher, both. Both very supportive, very supportive, um, you know, like the whole department was. But for that high up on the police department, the commissioner, especially the first deputy commissioner, you know, um, very supportive, you know. And um, I went in and uh, sat down and they told me, um, you know, we think we send you know, the And I'm thinking, okay, Anthony, you got me there. You got me there. <laughs> I'm going to auto crime. I, you know, I think it was kind of a shock when they said it to me because, you know, I didn't know what to expect. But, um, you know, that's where I went. And, uh, you know, I worked there for three years and I got promoted there. And I worked with some fine men and women there, you know, and uh, I didn't really know anything about cars. And you have to have like, you know, you learn. But, you know, the, the men and women at that time that worked there, because it was still a lot of, you know, chop shops and, you know, cutting out airbags and, you know, a lot of, you know, stuff Selling going on. parts in the black market. Yeah, yeah. That, and those, yeah, those detectives that I, that, I, that I had a pleasure of working with that worked there, they, they really they, they really knew that stuff when it comes to that. And, um, you know, um, I was there for three years and a um, uh, police officer that I, I worked with, uh, she passed away, Eileen Cargan. Yes, yes. 9-11 related illness, I believe, right? Uh, I, I can't remember, but, you know, her, she was also 
part of our group that came in mm -hmm. and um, hurt me dearly. She was mm -hmm. such a beautiful woman. You know, yes. so funny, everything. And um, went to the wake. And uh, some of my colleagues that were cops with Anthony were now up in the 13 Precinct Detective Squad. So um, I wanted to go back. <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, first they were a little hesitant about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was tough. Anthony, Anthony was killed uh, May 19th, 1997. And then, you know, uh, two months later, on July 18th, uh, my father dropped out of an aneurysm. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. That's terrible. Yeah, and uh, unexpected. And he was, buried on, he was buried on my birthday, which was July wow. 22nd. I was supposed to go to my, while I was out in employee relations, I was supposed to go. I laugh about it because it's a story of my life. I was supposed to go to, you know, psych services, you know, to do my visit because they were concerned. Mm -hmm. And I missed my appointment because of my father's death and funeral. So, of course, when I went in there, you know, how are you feeling? Well, my my father just passed away. Oh, really? So, how are you doing? Nah, I'm doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like an other, what's the joke? Uh, other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was yeah. kind of... Uh, so it's kind of funny about it was, um, you know, I always tell people they wanted to, uh, you know, um, have me stay out longer. I wanted to get back to work. So like I tell people, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My iPad's You're out. good. Uh, what, <laughs> You're I, all right. what, I, what I said, I always tell people is that um, you don't have to depend on the department. Nobody's going to do nothing to you. If you want to seek any type of psychiatric counseling privately, by all means, it's your right and it's private. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. You got to be protective of up here. Hmm? And it was like, people get afraid. And I said, there's nothing to be afraid of. Please, if you need counseling, you need to speak to somebody. And you don't, the job, you know, the job, the job, you don't have to go through the job. And if you go private, that's your business. Like what you do privately is your business. So if you want to go, you know, you know, for counseling, and I think everybody thinks that it's going to go against them. And it's not like that, you know, um, you know, that's what I did, and uh, I was able to go back, and that's I was assigned to auto crime, and that's where I walked and got promoted in uh, 1999. Sure. So uh, yeah, so eventually I did a little push and shove. I was able to go back to the uh, 13th squad, and I worked with a lot of the offices uh, that I, you know, a lot of detectives that I was offices with, including partner of mine I'm still friends with today, uh, Detective. Uh, William Hamilton, Willie, and uh, we worked together in the squad. And, uh, you know, it was a good five years. And then, unfortunately, there was another incident. <laughs> well, and I'll get to that in, around 2004. And, and you know what? Going back there was good because even though it was only three years after uh, police officer Sanchez's murder in, in 1997, you don't want to end your tenure there on that kind of a note because you had a great time at the 13th. It was a great command. And to go back there was kind of coming full circle in a much better way. But before I get to that 2004 incident, uh, right, and we talked about this off the air, Yeah. right when I feel the 13th was starting to kind of make peace with Anthony's murder comes 9-11 and it hits truck one, Brian McDonald, who was an emergency yeah. service cop in truck one is killed. And yeah. Morris Smith and Bobby Fazio, who knew Anthony uh, and definitely knew you, yes. the 13th, who were among the first police officers from the NYPD to get down to the World Trade Center that day, get killed, are among Correct. the 23 police officers from the NYPD to die that day. So yes. 
talk again, it's it's another gut punch and it's it's tough. And I have a picture yeah. of Bobby at Anthony's funeral. And before you comment, for those of you that would like to see it, this is police officer Robert Fazio, who was one of the 23 New York City police officers to die on 9-11. This is him crying at Anthony Sanchez's funeral a few years prior in 1997. And of course, uh, similar tears will be shed for him. So to lose, and I know you, I don't know if you knew Brian, but I know you knew Maura and, and, and Bobby quite well, to lose those two, um, right again, right on the heels of Anthony. Tell me about that process of coming to terms with their losses. Well, um, you know, it was funny because um, Bobby, uh, you know, he had a few years in the 13th prior to me and Anthony getting there. He got there in 84, yeah? Yeah, 84, and we got there in 88. So he was considered, believe it or not, one of the senior officers. And um, for some reason, I gained a nickname there. Uh, my name is Roy, and they called me Cowboy Roy. <laughs> um, Could be worse. Uh, yeah, it worked. So Bobby was one of those. He called me by Cowboy. Hey, Cowboy. Hey, what's up, Cowboy? So um, I remember um, I was walking back from a, a demonstration, and I was going back uh, to the 13th and I'm walking and I see a van pull up and who's driving a van, but Bobby Fazio. So I jump in. This is how I met him. And I jump in. He says, Hey, how you doing? I says, good. He goes, I'm Bobby. I'm in C-pop. I said, hi, I'm Roy. I'm in, I told him what squad I'm in. He, you know, he always said, Oh, you're in, you know, Mike Lacker's squad. He's a great guy. You know? Okay. So he drives up and maybe gets to like 23rd street. He's all right, get out here. I said, well, I thought you are taking me back to the command. He goes, no, there's a DOA that's been there for quite a while. And mm -hmm. if you walk into the 13th now, they're going to send you over to it. So go hang out and do what you got to do and walk back. And uh, that's how I met Bobby. And, um, uh, yeah, uh, that uh, picture of Bobby uh, with Anthony um, – I think that was um, one of the young, um, I didn't know until that was brought to my attention because um, again, when Anthony was killed, Bobby was very, very upset. He talked to me about it a few times. Um, it was emotional. I can imagine. And um, the thing was, um, Lo and behold, uh, that, you know, I was going to experience another tragedy, you know, with 9-11, um, you know, just to make, you know, Moira, uh, she was transit, um, her husband, Jimmy, uh, just, I couldn't say anything nicer about them all, but after Anthony was killed during the funeral service, during the wake afterwards, I really got to know Moira and it turned out she lived in the same neighborhood in Brooklyn like blocks away from, I think, where my grandmother was, where I went to as a child in the 70s. But um, I got to know her pretty well, you know, uh, because the support, you know, she was, you know, a lot of, you know, just a lot of people. And um, I think what Bobby was, Bobby was very upset about Anthony. And, you know, he specific not to really get into it because it's too um, emotional to talk about but um, i understand you don't have to um you know he just you know he shared with me once was on the train 
think he was living in Long Beach or Rockville Center. I can't remember. Yes. And we were on that. We were on the train, and um, it was just the two of us. And Bobby was telling me, uh, you know, just how he just is just beside himself. And then, you know, uh, 9-11, you know, then happened. And um, I was down there on a Friday looking for a perpetrator who uh, beat up his girlfriend in a drug and, you know, induced rage. And uh, they told me that he uh, begged at the uh, South Tower in the morning about eight o'clock. And I went down there with another detective that Friday. Before 9-11. Right before buildings yeah. came down on a Tuesday, I was there on a Friday because mm. I was off Sunday, Monday. Mm. So I, the, uh, the Port Authority police officer, I called, knew who he was and said, you know, if I see him there, I'll grab him. But he's usually down there panhandling. So I walked down there. I mean, it was a beautiful Friday morning. And, you know, we walked, I walked around. I remember I said to myself, like, because I was there at the first, you know, bombing. You couldn't get a car near the place, you know. You, you had yeah, a not after that. Yeah, you, you you couldn't. And I remember commenting with the other detective I was with, and I remember we walked through and they had you know the big sphere that was there with all the chairs. Lo and behold, a few days later, uh, you know, Tuesday, Tuesday, you know, the, the towers came down, and um, I you know, God, I said to myself, I probably I was going in for a four to twelve. So I said, I probably would have been down there that morning looking for the perpetrator again. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, they came down. I went in that, you know, in for that 4 to 12, and it was just unbelievable. And that's when I heard that, you know, Moira and Bobby were missing. Uh, and, you know, a lot of other officers and personnel were missing. And, um Yep. They sent, yeah, they sent me to Beekman Downtown Hospital to the temporary morgue. And then um, we ended up going back. And then we ended up by, after midnight, I was back up at the uh, Bellevue morgue. And, um, you know, it was nonstop. You know, I think Corrections was doing a lot of the transport. I always remember them being there and, you know, taking the bodies and the remains out to go into the morgue for identification. And then, um, you know, when I went to the landfill, it was like the first couple of days that they actually started doing the detail at the landfill. And, uh, you know, you know, we were there and, you know, there was remains found. And, you know, uh, you know, um, I went back to the morgue. So uh, I liked, you know, the, the, the morgue was it was better than driving to Staten Island, but I didn't mind doing any of it at all. But uh I think the hardest thing was uh, they gave us all the scrubs at the morgue, like the pants and the, you know, like they would, the doctors would wear. And the, the commanding officer, I think it was from Missing Persons, he was such a nice gentleman, big tall guy. And, you know, he was in charge there and he said, you know, if you're coming back, you know, take this stuff home with you, wash it, do whatever, so you have it. So I would wear it and I would walk, you know, 30th Street all the way up towards Penn Station. People grabbing me. Um, flies, you know, because they knew where I was coming from. Missing, uh, please, you know, here's his picture. Yeah. There was a woman, um, she had a, a hairbrush in a baggie for DNA. Mm. 
trying to give it a, what do you do, right? Exactly. I don't want to tell her no, but what am I going to do with it? You know, it was horrible, horrible. And, um, you know, I went back and I um, was there that morning and the call came in uh, that um, Bobby was found. So I, um, I ran up and I let everybody know in the front of the mall because there was a process when remains would come in, photographs, dental, everything else. You know, um, I uh, went up and I said, I worked with him. He's my friend. So like, fine, no problem. So um, you're going to be all right? I says, I'm used to this. <laughs> they um, brought him in and uh, understandable they brought him in and um you know we had to do what we had to do and um it was hard and i stayed with him and um i helped fingerprint him and um i made sure uh that you know until he was done and um the girl you know when we got to go out who's standing there police officer joe bruce <laughs> you know full circle we got to stop meeting like this, Joe, right? You know, and yeah, God bless him too. And uh, they had the funeral, the hearse, and everything ready to go. And um, I remember after uh, Anthony was killed at the wake, um, the I think it was emergency service police officer, uh, he had come up to me and uh, he said to me, Look, um, I just want to let you know that after your partner had passed. You know, they had to do an investigation, including an autopsy. And um, he said, I stayed with your partner the whole time. During it, afterwards, until it was claimed by the family. So um, I think um, that's what I want. I, I knew that's what I had to do, what I was going to do anyway. And um, <laughs> went to the wake and... You know, you meet, I met his family and they talked about Anthony. Yeah. Uh, that's that's like, you know, that's the hardest thing, you know, too, because now they're suffering their tragedy. And, you know, they're letting me know. I remember how my son or my brother felt when, you know, Anthony was killed. And, you know, I knew it. And uh, I just said, look, I was... I was with him and um that's important. Yeah, that kind of, you know, after that, you know, 9/11 and me, I just between the landfill, the morgue, ground zero, you know, when you're dealing with a lot of remains and uh I remember I one of the stories was a fireman had been brought in <clears throat> and it was very emotional and um all his colleagues well, coming in, like you know, they found whoever they found, and um, he was not recognizable, you know, as far as so. I remember one of the um, uh, brother firemen from his house came up to me and he says to me, his jacket had a name on it, so they said, this, this is his name, and he's got a distinctive tattoo on his arm, so got that settling stuff and 
as they were doing the Emmy and then we're doing on um wiping away and wiping away we're pouring and wiping and um no it was no tattoos and what it was was I found out later on that was you know that you would run out when all these firemen were running to the scene they would each grab each other's jackets accidentally you know and I, I you know I assume that's what had happened but it's things like that that you know you know bothered you you know um oh yeah you know, yeah, you know that, you know you you, you 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 try, you know while there, I think I had the mode that you know, you're gonna try to help everybody you can and try to ID as many people as you can, but you know and helping, in, in in the process that's what I was there for. But, you know, unfortunately, you know it's it, it was what it was. You know what I'm saying? Just a horrible thing. Horrible. I believe- uh, yeah, you know, and, and I go back to something Kenny Winkler, who you probably remember from One Truck, mentioned to me uh, uh, from my one of my ESU interviews I did a little while ago that, you know, the 14 emergency service officers, <clears throat> excuse me, they got sent in there. They were in there because they were sent in there. And I'm not minimizing their loss in any way. Of course, they did a great job and their sacrifice is just as uh, heroic and, and just as sad, of course. Yes. But they, you know, their function, what's their function? Situations like that to do rescues, to slap on that Scott pack and go up those stairs, which is exactly what they did. But right. he made a point to mention the other nine, which includes Bobby and Mora, that, you know, they didn't have the same training that we did. They didn't have to go in there, but they did. Why? Because it was about being a cop first. You know, you think of Maura, think of Bobby, Jimmy Leahy from the 6th Precinct, mm-hmm. Mark and Ray from Transit District 4, yes. Danny Richards from the Bomb Squad. Yes. Uh, you had Timmy Roy as well. And, and for goodness sakes, John Perry, who was retiring. The man was retiring. And yeah. he's, he could have easily put his papers in and said, okay, guys, it has nothing to do with me. Mm-mm. He went yeah. down there. He helped out. Unfortunately, you know, he lost his life. But that's that's kind of like I talked about earlier with Anthony. It's the spirit of the job and the job can throw you a lot of curveballs. So, you know, that brings us to 04. And here you are. I think it's on 7th Avenue. And listen, you did what you had to do. This is where, unfortunately, 7th Avenue became the OK Corral for a moment. Yes. um, Just uh, it's uh, an incident (laughs) with all my other incidents. uh, You know, I just you just try to you try to bury, but, uh, my partner, Willie Hamilton, William Hamilton, we were all cops together. You know, he had about six months more than me and Anthony. So we all worked together. And then, you know, when I went to the squad, uh, you know, Willie was already there as a detective and he was going out to retrieve a photograph of a perpetrator who had just pistol whipped a coworker and, um, you know, at a bike messenger service. Jeez. And, um, you know, we were just going to go get, go get a photograph and, uh, we ended up driving over and we went into the service and, you know, as the, the manager was giving the information to my partner, one of the bike messages said, Oh, the guy you're looking for, he's standing up on the corner. <laughs> so, uh, he was up on the corner and, um, I said, to, you, know, you know, how do you want to do this? So we'll go up like we're businessmen going to the train. You know, we, we you get the suits on, it fits. Yeah, yeah we had the yeah. flip phones, you know, walking. Yeah. And we went, we got as close as we could to him. We grabbed him. He turned around, he pointed the gun right in my face. So uh, I fired. And um, uh, he he went down. And, uh, you know, the thing is, is uh, what's funny about the police department is, They'll always, there's always somebody to let you know 
what you did wrong. It was like an old style Derringer gun. Yeah. Don't really want to get into the whole story about it because that's fine. Much, but I'm saying that it, it misfired. But Thank you know, God. They, they said to me, you know, you know, um, you should be, you know, you should be dead. You know, reasons and tactics or whatever, you know. Right. And, uh, you know, Monday morning uh, quarterbacking. Yeah. The only I can make light on it was I think there was somebody from, I don't know, it was Channel 7 News. One of them said to me, if you can get a chuckle out of this, they said, you know, your partner was killed on West 18th Street, 7th Avenue. And you shot and killed the guy on uh, West 24th Street, 7th Avenue. How do you feel? I said, I got to stay off 7th Avenue. <laughs> and <he> got, <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> so, yeah, so um, that was kind of, um, uh, I, I don't know what to say. Yeah, <laughs> you know, people. My nickname was the the Black Cloud. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was um, all right. Uh, you know, okay. Uh, you know, everything went good. Grand jury, no true bill. Everything was, you know. Uh, thank God nobody else was hurt. You know, and um, it was just one of those situations that, again, I tell people in you know, support groups, you just don't know. You know, you know, you think because you have one bad incident or one traumatic incident that another one's not going to happen for the rest of your life. Well, one may not, but <laughs> some may come along quite a bit, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's how you deal with it, too. Glenn Klein, another friend of mine from emergency service, likened it to Sponge. And I love this analogy, and I steal it from him all the time. And I'm sorry, Glenn, but it's such a freaking good analogy that I have to yeah. steal it. That what, do you ha what happens when you're washing the dishes with the sponge? You squeeze it out. Most of that water comes out, but some of it stays in. It's the same yeah. thing with, and we all have it to different yeah. degrees. We all have stuff in our lives that's like, ugh, that was a terrible moment for me. Yeah, but, you know, it sticks with you. So how you cope with it, like we talked about earlier, uh, is definitely important. And let me just say, Cowboy Roy one perp zero. <laughs> so that's good there. Thank goodness it misfired. <laughs> you know, another oh, mystery yeah, off the street. Yeah. But, yeah. So yeah. that yeah, you know, shortly after that, I had an opportunity uh, to go to. Um, they sent me to polygraph school. And I became a certified polygraphist. That'll be another podcast. I can tell you all about polygraphs. Everybody mm -hmm. seems to be into nobody lies, right? right. <laughs> and, I, uh, it, it's so it's so fascinating it's because yeah. I grew up watching Maury. You know, yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, the yeah. lie detector said yeah. you're telling the truth. That yeah. was a lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 that like I said, that's too much. I, that would have to be another podcast. Yeah, no, you know, that's yeah. Oh, you're coming back. I'm bringing you yeah. back. We got some we got other a, stories to get to. But just to go back before that, um, mm -hmm. I had gotten a call, you know, a uh, few years after 9-11, and um, it was uh, uh, a lieutenant from um, Brooklyn South uh, Patrol Borough, and he told me that they were doing some sort of training with police officers, uh, mostly rookies to, like, no more than five years. Mm -hmm. And... Um, they said they asked me if I wanted to come down and speak to them about what I went through with Anthony. And I said, by all means. And um, I had gone down there and um, I went in and spoke to them. And basically the whole room was moved by it. And um, standing in the back, I didn't even know, came right up to me, was uh, Chief Joseph Fox. Great and, man. Um, oh, yeah. Came right up to me and he just was like, look. That was, he just was beside himself. He said, you know, that was so good the way you spoke. 
He said, would you mind doing it again? I said, sure, chief. We have brand new um, rookie officers and they're going to be assigned to Brooklyn South. And right when they get out of the academy, before they even go to their commands, they do a couple of days of orientation. So um, he invited me to come and speak with them. And uh, I did it the first time and it was tough. You know, they're all brand new, but I was getting, I was getting a message across. You know, I was letting them know, you know, if there's things out there. And, you know, after it was over, some of them approached me. Women, men, having some issues, just got out of the academy, heard what I said on the stage. And um, some of them were really having some issues going on, like with family, or, you know, and they were just now they're brand new rookies going into, you know, working. And it's stressful when you're, when you knew, and, um, I felt good, you know, you know, telling them, look, you know, uh, if you need to talk, call me, if you need, you know, there's services with the police department, uh, popper, there's police self-support groups, please, please, you know, don't be afraid. And, um, I remember, um, <laughs> I got a call, uh, from the chief and there was a young rookie officer that was assigned to that particular orientation. I think he was probably out on the street a week. And there was a, I believe it was a robbery in Brooklyn and uh, something with stolen cars, I believe. I can't remember. And he was new. So I said, all right, you know, you stay here. You watch the cars. And one of the perpetrators had the, you know what, to come back to get one of the cars. Ended up pulling a gun and wounding this young officer. So it was not, it was, you know, non-life-threatening, but he was in Kings County Hospital. So um, Chief asked me, can you come and visit with him? I said, by all means. So I walk in the room and he's, he's there with his family. And the first thing he does is he turns and he goes, oh, this was the detective I was telling you about. His officer, it was a uh, police officer, Anthony Sanchez, that was shot and killed. So next to the family goes, oh, I remembered him. Yeah, tell them the story. I said, look, I am not going to tell the story about Anthony Sanchez with this poor guy recovering from a gunshot wound. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, Maybe asked, another time. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, it made me stronger because, you know, again, as much as tragedy is and, 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 and trauma and PTSD, which a lot of people try thinking by, forgetting it and putting it out of their mind you can't so what it is is when you feel when you expose yourself you feel and i just remember that one particular incident with that young officer actually i went in there with butterflies in my stomach and i was so nervous and you know thinking about back what i went through with dante and then i go into this hey tell the story oh i i remember you know they were just so such nice so nice they really were and um you know I can, you know, I continue to do it, uh, you know, for the chief and, 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 uh, I, I was really happy that I got letters that I still save that they wrote, you know, uh, they critique the orientation, you know, everything would always be blank. And then there was a, that was a big page for me, which made me feel good. You feel like you're doing something, you know, Right, you are, 
Yeah. They are. It's, you know what, like I said earlier, it's important they hear these stories because, listen, there's a lot of highs with the job. Same thing in the fire department. There's a lot of highs yeah. with the job. There's also a lot of lows. There's some really, really difficult moments, things you see, things you endure. It's yeah. traumatic. It can be traumatic. Yeah. So, you know, it's helping you to get it out and it's helping them too to yes. understand this is yeah. the job. This is the reality. So, I, you know, I, like I said, I give you a lot of credit for that. And yeah. in 2005, your last stop was major case. Yes. Uh, which man, again, they put the M in major case, all a lot of kidnapping, certain bank robberies. Yes. You work with the FBI. This is, if you're a detective and you want to work, this is deep or one of the places to be. So getting there, a lot of it to do with your course, your polygraph expertise. Yes. Tell me about, you know, you know, going there, even though you had experience as a, as a detective by this point, this is something entirely new. Did you feel like a rookie all over again? No, no, you know, not really. Uh, you know, um, when I got there, I was really took the whole polygraph thing hook, line, and sinker, and, you know, uh, you know, I was, I, I was greeted again by so many, you know, offices and uh, detectives and so detectives and, you know, my boss personally that worked there. And I, I felt at this point, like, okay, this is pretty good. You know, I'm doing polygraphs. I was turning out of a, a task force building in Rosedale where I grew up and, nice. uh, yeah. I was, I was, um, very uh happy there and i was close to home my career was winding down and i thought like wow i, I think i could do 25 years and then um <laughs> again uh november 28 2005 yeah that um that changed me for good i um i uh that was that was um that was the um, hardest thing for me because uh, that happened and it was funny. Like, I have no problem in telling the story. I, I, I really don't tell it that much, but I think it's important. I was thrown right back into the mix. And, you know, I, I just, the thing was, I had the experience, but in the same sense, the trauma was just double. It was just... Yeah. And, um, and before you continue, just to let yeah. the audience know what we're talking about. So November 28th, 2005, Dylan Stewart's a police officer. I think this is in Brooklyn, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. And he's got about five years on the job and he pulls up next to a car. Car might have been wanted in connection with another crime that had just occurred. And as they pull up next to it, uh, one of the perps that's in the vehicle starts firing into the car. And Dylan and his partner, you know, are on the receiving end of the, of the gunfire. I don't think his partner was struck. Dylan was wearing a bulletproof vest. But of course, in what is very cruel irony, the bullet hit him in the armpit, which wasn't covered by the vest and traveled down his body and severed all the vital organs. Now, or one of the vital organs, I believe it pierced his heart. He yeah. didn't realize the severity of his injury because no. even though he was mortally wounded, this warrior chased these perps for yeah. five blocks. And that's when he realized at the end of the five blocks how serious his injuries were, and they rushed him to the hospital where, unfortunately, he died. You have a picture of that warrior to put up? Yeah, let me find it real quick. Dylan yeah. Stewart, you know, who he, puts the W in warrior. I'm going to display yeah. his photo momentarily. He this actually, guy. Yeah. He actually chased him. Yep. Un unbelievable. Mortal wound and all. Heart yeah. pierced by a bullet. And uh, this gentleman who I'm going to display his photo momentarily was the one. And, again, this is the job. This is what you want. In a cop. This was Dylan Stewart. You know, that photo right there. And he had a, a wife and two young children at home. And, of course, 
despite that, you know, he still wasn't hesitant to put his life on the line if need be. And he knew police work meant something. And, you know, and he knew getting people like this off the street meant something. Yeah. And again, that's the thing that sticks with me, man. Gunshot wound to the heart. Still yeah. chasing these guys five blocks. Yeah. Warrior. Yeah. So Legend. I was uh, I was home and it was the uh, early morning hours. I think it was after four o'clock. I can't remember. It was in the morning. Wait. And uh, I got a call from my, my boss and he said to me, how fast can you get to Kings County Hospital? So I said, I'm on my way. So got in the car and got to Kings County Hospital and um, there was already uh, detectives there which were dedicated, dedicated detectives that worked on that case from the very beginning. You know, God, you know, God bless them all. They were just, mm -hmm. and I met them and I told them where I was from. So I um, said to them, you know, I'll stay here. Uh, they were, they had him in emergency surgery. I was right out, outside the, uh, the door to the surgery room where they were desperately trying to save him. And, uh, you know, the other detectives and stuff uh, were doing what they had to do. And I thought for a minute, I, I, you know, I kept asking, being a pest. Uh, I said, "How's how's things? How's things?" And they said, "They might, he might be, you know, stable." So I got that relief, and then nah, came out and said, "No, nah, not not going well." So at this, um, I turned around, and uh, distinctly, in the hallway of the e, you know, it's the ER. There's there's you know, there's also hospital, you know, beds and rooms all. His uh, family were there, and it was his wife, I believe, um, his sister and husband, and his mother. And they're in the hallway, and um, I just ran over, and it was an empty room. And I turned to, I, I forgot it, what deputy inspector or whoever that was there, and I said, can we put them in this room? I says, please, let's get them out of the hallway, put them in a room. So... Um, we went into the room and um, they told him he died. So um, the mother and the wife and everybody just, you know, um, and I'm standing there and um, I went to the wife and, uh, you know, uh, I think the commissioner came and the mayor came and um, I, uh, I, I said, man, oh man, I said, oh, come on. So, uh, they wanted to go in and say their goodbyes. And um, people have said to me after that, I would have never done that. No, 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 no. No, I said, I'm doing it. I'm doing it for this. It's this a brother hero. officer. Yeah, this is a hero. And yeah. he, I do it for anybody, uh, you know. So um, we had I gone in and checked. And they, you know, we went in and we said our goodbyes. And it was very emotional. And I think what happened was um, I had his wife. And I think she just had their... Uh, she gave birth to like I don't know if it's a second child that that really hurt, and um yeah he had two children two daughters two daughters I think one when he was killed tragically I think his wife just gave birth to the mm -hmm. second child I'm not 100 percent sure but the family had um gone to the elevators and um I just stayed with her and it was just me and her and I said all right you know I'm gonna walk you to the elevator. And I know I have a picture of uh, when I, Liz, myself, Anthony's uh, funeral. Yep. Uh, Allow me to find it momentarily. Yeah. You can keep telling the story. Yeah. I find so it. Um, I got up 
And I ended up, um, I remember holding Dylan Stewart's wife like I was holding Liz as we were walking towards the elevator. And um, what was very um, incredible about it was as I was holding her and I was walking her, uh, I felt her emotion come right into me. I felt it. And I never felt anything like that ever again, but I felt it as I was walking with her. And all I said to her was, I said, I've been through this, we'll talk. And she was just like, it's hard to relive it, but I am for a reason. So I got into the elevator and we went down and the elevator doors opened up and there was a sea of press and police officers and everybody else. And who's standing there? Chief Joe Fox. <laughs> you know, they did all the speaking at the orientation. They, I made eye contact with him and I just said, let me go. So I had gone back to the command and uh, I went up and everybody was working so hard. So my boss came up to me and said, uh, you better leave. And I go, leave, I'm going to stay. He goes, no, you better leave. I go, why? He goes, well, first of all, my CO got me an Anthony R uh, first seat, which was, like I said, Chief of Detectives, Chief uh, George Brown. He saw me and he turned around and said to somebody, who sent Roy to the hospital? Out of all the detectives, you sent him? But it was my job, you know? So, um, and then the second thing was people watching this will laugh. My boss said to me, normally you, you never shut the blank up, but you haven't said a word in about the last hour and a half, so I think you better go. <laughs> so I got outside and I, I called my wife and I was like, I'm done. I'm done. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, it's, it's done. I, I'm not going to do 25 because my luck, something else is going to happen. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, I don't blame you. Yeah, you know, I just, it's, uh, but I used it to help, you know, when I was on the job and, um, right till today, I, 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 you know, like I said, I, uh, I got involved with a lot of veterans groups. I was working with veterans. Uh, I was working with local community groups, uh, you know, and um, one that I'm very particularly um, fond of, which I, I wanted to mention was uh, in my town here in Oceanside, New York, there's a, a volunteer group called the Oceanside Community Warriors. And um, they're formed of, um, you know, residents from the neighborhood. And what they do is they go out and they, clean up the neighborhood. They, you know, beautify the neighborhood. They plant flowers, you know, they hang flags. And um, when I was assigned a major case, I had to go up to the bomb squad one night. And um, it's funny how things work. And I went up there. I can't remember why I wrecked my brain, but they sent me up there and I went up alone. I had, a, I think it was fireworks. <laughs> I was dropping off. Oh yeah. But uh, I went up there and um, one of the supervisors, he knew me. And he knew my brother Steve from Midtown South. So he had he was sitting there and um we started talking and this gentleman walked out. And I remember he was pretty pretty jacked guy. And uh he said, You're from Oceanside. And I said, Yeah, and he goes, uh, he's from Oceanside. And uh I said, Oh really? And it was just small talk. That was uh Lou Alvarez. Yeah. Was right the now. supervisor Tony Beyond Lillo? 
No, I can't remember the. I can't remember his name. I remember because I think Tony was in Midtown South for a little bit. It would come to me, but it's. Yeah. But I, you know, it was funny because you know he was a big advocate for us. Yeah. Lou Alvarez. And, Lou was great. Lou was, yeah, and, Lou was a man's man. Yeah, and when he passed away, they dedicated a park, which is you know on Terrell Avenue, right off of uh, Atlantic Avenue in uh, Oceanside. And uh, I don't know if I sent you a picture of that one, uh, Lou Alvarez Park, but. These community warriors, these, these these volunteers are unbelievable. They go and they decorate for Christmas. They beautiful. They do a spring cleanup. They do a fall cleanup. I actually um, had gotten a uh, hundred flags, and if I could let you know, anybody's welcome to do it between now and nine eleven. We're gonna go over to the park and we're gonna um, you know, uh, display the flags in the park. But uh, you know, they do a lot, and there's also a nine eleven. Uh, memorial at a schoolhouse green they take care of and um if anybody wants please it would do me a big favor if they donate to these these um this organization that i help with uh it's you on the um oceanside community warriors site on facebook or uh they could uh go on uh, oceanside warriors new york that's it right there oceanside warriors new york at gmail.com yep and um like i said uh it feels good that, you know, you go out there and you do things and you talk to people and they're doing such an awesome job. And, you know, not only with Lou Alvarez Park and, you know, and the uh, schoolhouse green, but they really, you know, beautify the community and they're on some heroes. They really are. They, oh, yeah. you, know, you know, and, um, you know, the last one that's been the most important to me yes. was uh, <laughs> you have the picture of me and my little buddy. There you go. That was me uh, back in um, March uh, in Racon, Puerto Rico. Um, this was a rescue dog by the name of Phoenix that I uh, took home from Puerto Rico to JFK to a foster family that was waiting. There is a um, very important organization that I'm involved with. And, um, you know, it's called Sky Animal Rescue by Stephen. Stephen Bruno. In the, on the side in Puerto Rico. You know, Puerto Rico, I've been there um, four times. I'm going back again in January. Uh, they suffered a lot during the hurricane. They, they, mm -hmm. got, hit, they got hit pretty hard. With, I forgot it was uh, Maria and, um, what was the, uh, Fiona. Oh, yeah. and they're, they're still recovering, you know. And um, these poor uh, animals that are strays, you know, they're injured. And, um, you know, Steve and his crew, they go out. And they're, des they're in desperate need of, you know, you know, anything, you know, funding for medicine, for help transport. They do all the paperwork to help you transport. I, it was easy to do. But, you know, everything from blankets to leashes to food, whatever people could donate uh, on his end. On this end is uh, Karen Miller. She would be on, you know, she's in Long Beach, New York. And um, what I found um, a lot of times when I was with support groups, uh, a lot of 9-11 first responders, veterans, because I did work with veterans, they find a lot of comfort and healing with, um, you know, animals, especially dogs. Mm -hmm. The hard part is most of these dogs are rescue dogs. So they've been through terrible traumatic experiences. And I just feel that, you know, for people to give it a try and help, because it really helped me too, you know, because you're helping rehabilitate and finding these animals a home and it makes you feel good. So again, um, you can Venmo at Sky Animal Rescue 
uh, or it's um, uh, his uh, website is uh, Sky Animal Rescue by Steve Stephen at uh, gmail.com. Very important to me. We're going to try to do a uh, an adoption event. I'm going to try to do one at uh, Anthony Sanchez Park, and I want to do one at uh, Lou Alvarez Park. But uh, please, uh, they're very important to me, both organizations. And when anybody could donate, they can. And if you want to lastly put up the picture of me and Anthony, which everybody knows, that was taken in 1994. <laughs> Let me see if I, get, if I have that one. That was the one of us in uniform. This one? No, no, oh, that, I took, oh, go back to that one. I took that picture because I said, look, we're, we're, in, a, we're, in, a, we're in a radio car together. We're partners. <laughs> Here's the one from 94. Yeah, that was, there, there he is. There he is. Yeah. See, I still had the old jacket. Yep. So uh, I, I want, he had just gotten that new, that was in 1994. Yeah. That's when you, that's when you guys were making the switch from the, uh, what I call the Kansas city Royal blue to the dark Navy blues. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, like I said, um, you know, help each other out there. If you're suffering from any type of depression or, you know, you're not feeling a hundred percent or you feel you need to talk to somebody, please, you know, you have my information uh, you know, um, I always direct people, you know, it's, you don't have to get the job involved. You don't, everybody feels like, well, if I say something, you know, uh, the job will find out, uh, retired guys are worried that if I say something, they'll come and take my guns. No, 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 you know, please, you know, the best medicine is seeking counseling and help and PTSD is real. Uh, trauma is real. Um, Everybody, you know, I've met so many people that have had it. And um, I learned, like, people would come up to me and grab me on the side and say, look, I just want to say to you that, you know, I went to school with your partner. I knew him. But I'm really sorry for bringing that up. I'm sorry. No, no, please. You're not. You're not. Talk about him. Please. You're not. Keep the memory no. alive. Yeah, keep it alive. No, no, I'm not going to be offended. I'm not going to get no, upset, no. you know, like, but there's people out there that think that, and, you know, and, you know, with 9-11, with us first responders, I really, I'm, I'm going to try my best, uh, you know, uh, to try to work. There should be some sort of counseling or some sort of support groups for 9-11 responders. I mean, I tried to do it, you know, but I got tied up with other things. I'm, I'm worried about my animals coming from uh my dog's coming from puerto rico uh god bless you steve um but uh you know that's 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 the best thing is to you know definitely if you have you know you're not feeling well or you have any sort of depression or something's bothering you the best thing is to talk and um you know uh i learned from what i went through in my career is very emotional but um it feels good when over the years, you know, people tell me, thank you, Roy. Thank you for, thank you for, you know, helping and, you know, thank you for being what you're being and, you know, doing what you're doing. And, you know, my attitude to them is, hey, as long as you have a smile on your face, I'm happy. That's it, Mike. <laughs> That's well it. Done. Well yeah. done, my friend. Well done. We have one segment that we always end with on the show, uh, and it's the rapid fire. It's going to be five hit run questions for me. And what a show this was. 
and uh, five hit and run answers from you. You could say pass if you want. And the first one I'll give you is, and you don't have to pick just one. Funniest call you ever responded to? Funniest call I ever responded to was a person that said he was being robbed in a, uh, a store on 14th Street. <clears throat> we got down there. We went in. It wasn't a robbery. The guy said that he paid uh, $1.49 for a can of soup. Now it was two forty nine. They're robbing him. <laughs> well, he ain't lying. He ain't lying. <laughs> Second, <laughs> f- funniest colleagues you ever worked with. You can say both. Oh my God! Oh um, <laughs> oh uh, God! Uh, there, Mike. Oh, there were so many of them. I think I spent the first ten years of my career laughing. And poor Anthony. Um, he had developed uh, asthma. Uh, when he got older. Mm-hmm. So when we used to crack jokes, I used to feel bad because he would laugh so hard he would start hacking. <laughs> so yeah. we nicknamed him the hacker. <laughs> 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 but, uh, oh, there was so many. And and they all, you look at every comedian today from Ben Stiller to, you know, you name it. Um, we had them all, just all those personalities. We had them, you know, just think of every comedian. But, uh, yeah, there was so many of them. I couldn't specifically point out one. No, that's fine. Listen, yeah, some of the, some of the funniest people you'll ever meet are first responders. Third, favorite cop show or a cop movie? Uh, my favorite cop show was, um, believe it or not, Fort Apache, The Bronx. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, it's a classic. Yeah, yeah. it's a classic. Like, yeah, that one I like because, uh, you know, basically when I went on the job, like that scene when they're running after people in uniform and guys were still wearing white socks. I always loved that scene with Paul Newman. And he was chasing. He had the white socks on. Yep. You know, you know, no matter what you did, you always, you always, you know, whatever kind of socks you got. I don't know what they're like today. We always wore. I think we did it in defiance. <laughs> you know, you know, so, yeah. So that was yeah. That was one of my favorite movies. Yeah, love that one. I'm a big original Law and Daughter guy. I've said this before because Jerry Orbach was wonderful. And movie wise, uh, it's got to be Rush Hour. Uh, any, I don't care which one. Rush Hour one, two, or three. I could watch them all. Yeah. I still laugh to this day to the point where I start hacking because yeah. yeah. But this is another question that you don't have to say just one. You can say multiple if you want. Fourth favorite bar or restaurant in New York City, anywhere. Uh, my favorite bar and restaurant in New York City. Well. We the one we went to, it's still there. Uh, was uh, Plug Uglies. It's actually oh, yes. it's on the other side of Third Avenue. I knew the you know the Stapletons that had it. He was a fireman. That was one of my favorite bars. Uh, let's see. Um, I think um, some of them are probably gone. Uh, the Twenty Third Street Saloon was always a nice one, uh, and um, the one on Irving Place, uh, right on the corner there. I can't think of the name of it. Uh, probably somebody will write it afterwards. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was, uh, and, uh, I, I, I'm sure I'll get done and people are going to write me and say, you didn't mention this place. You didn't mention that place. <laughs> we'll say all of them. Collectively. All of them. All, all of them. them. <laughs> all of them. Yeah, yeah. Anyone you're thinking Patty, of? Patty yeah. McGuire's was good too. Patty. The one I've heard of. Yeah. Patty McGuire's. He was another good place. Mm-hmm. Great place to go during Christmas. He decorates that place up beautifully. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you ever been there during the holidays. No, I haven't. Uh, you have to check it out. When you go, have the guys from the emergency truck one take you over there. And, <laughs> and, and 
and buy you a couple of drinks. Okay. Greg Welch, Chris Williams, and Tommy Longa, if you're listening, take me down there. Especially yeah. you, Greg. Because uh, and knowing Greg, he'll he'll get me in into A, a lot of trouble, but B, it will be the most <laughs> hilarious trouble you can think of because that's just the type of guy Greg is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> love you, Greg. Fifth and finally. If you can grab a new cop that just graduated, they're fresh out of the ceremony of Magic Square Garden, just to toss their caps in the air, or their white gloves in the air, rather, I should say. Uh, what advice would you give them? Um, expect the unexpected. Yeah. It's always there. And don't, and, and, and don't take it personally. <laughs> Pete's Tavern. Pete's yeah. Tavern. There it is. Yeah. Pete's Tavern. That's that was one. always – Anthony always liked the burgers in there. I love burgers uh, too. Yeah, so yeah, uh definitely um my advice to somebody brand new is expect the unexpected and be prepared. Be prepared if the worst comes. Mm. Uh because it, it'll happen. You know, uh, that's that's that that one I like. Thank you for that last one. Because I always tell I I always say that. No problem. I always ask that. To any cop or fireman I get on the show, I always make sure I ask that question. My brother, this was great. Don't say goodbye yet. We're going to say our goodbyes off the years. So stick around. Uh, but this was amazing, and I cannot thank you enough. I know some of these stories are definitely not easy to revisit, but I'm so glad you did because it's going to help a whole new generation of police officers out there, and even the retired ones. You know, Anybody that listens to this, I think they'll benefit a lot. So thank you so much for making it. I'm glad you had me on, and I'm glad I was able, to, once again, to tell my story because – I want to help and, you know, like I said, I, I appreciate it so much. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure's all mine, my friend, and you definitely did help. Stick around. Like I said, we'll share goodbyes off the air. And thanks to everybody that tuned in tonight via YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Coming up next on the Mike the New Haven podcast, we usually do our shows on Tuesdays. There's no show on Tuesday this week. It's good. It's been moved to Wednesday. I had a little bit of a scheduling conflict. So this Wednesday at 7, Volume 3 of The Beat, Profiles of Police Nationwide. That's going to be Bill Hansen. He's a detective retired out of the Tucson, Arizona Police Department. So he'll tell me about his career out in uh, that portion in the country specifically his years in tucson so looking forward to that and i believe if i recall correctly next friday september 8th yes is another volume of the beat retired special agent ken strange worked in the department of justice worked in the fbi wrote a book his dad was actually a chief on the nypd so uh, he'll tell me about that and those should be two very good shows coming up again wednesday no tuesday this upcoming week wednesday and Friday, volumes four and five of The Beat, respectively. In the meantime, on behalf of retired NYPD Detective Roy Ruland, I'm Mike Cologne, and we see you next time. Great week, everybody. Stay safe. Take care of yourselves.
Yeah.